Hi, this is Ed Sharlack, writer of television shows for 45 years and counting. And uh, you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You could find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers Series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! What kind of a sick school is this? Things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate from in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A day no man! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have the phone. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God.
Hello and welcome to Then Is Now podcast, the show in which we discuss pop culture of the past and how it relates today, as well as helping you introduce young people to all the cool stuff they missed out on. I am your host, Rigor, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Esper. How's it going, Chris? It's going well. How are you doing? Good, good. Very good. Uh, we just had a, well, some snow last night, which was really annoying. It's like, yep. please go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thankfully, around here is just uh, like a small dusting, and that was about it for oh, me. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I am looking forward to the uh, spring weather. <laughs> and, I know. Uh, it's, uh, it's much needed. Um, today's actually a pretty nice day out, so that sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah, finally, because it was freaking freezing last night and this morning. Of course, of course. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Also joining us today is frequent guest co-host and my sunny boy, Spency. Welcome back, Spence. Hello, thank you for having me. Awesome, thanks for being here. So one thing I wanted to quickly bring up, we don't normally talk about these things on our um, series and getting people into horror films, but I had to bring it up because I know, Spence, you saw The Batman yesterday? Mm. Yep, just last night. Yep, yep I did too, night. I saw it last night. Chris, you have not seen it, correct? I have okay, not so seen we'll, it, nope. we'll be spoiler-free, but I just wanted to just shoot the shit about it for a little bit with Spence. Um, so, what'd you think? Probably my favorite Batman movie, uh, maybe ever. Uh, I really think that this is a new level, uh, and they're doing things differently, and in a way that, in my opinion, works really well. And they took a really good, uh, like, you know, B-class villain and made him an S-tier villain. They did a really good job, I thought. So I, I really am excited about this, and I, you know, am not worried in the slightest about uh, Edward Cullen being Batman. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that was kind of worrisome when we first heard it that he was going to play uh, Batman. But yeah, I felt like like the Christopher Nolan Batmans uh, really took Batman to the next level in terms of um, the they were gritty, they were dark, they were more realistic in terms of you know him. Uh, the logistics of him becoming this crime fighter. And I thought this movie took all of that to the next level. Like it was way darker. I mean, Batman is scary as shit in this thing. Um, it was, it was way more believable. And when I say realistic, I mean, it, you know, you, you have a level of fantasy with your superhero movies, for example. And I felt with this one, they made it a lot more believable, believable that this guy could do this stuff um, I don't want to get into too many details about that, but the other thing I, I had mentioned to Chris beforehand um, was that a lot of movies that try to be quote-unquote dark is they'll use like a green tint or a blue tint, and that's been done to death, and this movie used a lot of sepia tones, and that just, to me, that added to it. It gave this sort of an artistic feel without being artsy-fartsy, you know? Mm. Mm. Interesting. I saw a great meme uh, earlier today. It showed screenshots of all the various batmans from over the years like the first one was this nice and bright image from the 60s television show the adam west show then you move on to the 89 okay it's a little darker then a little darker a little darker you get to 2022 he's like you know he uh in this recent batman there is just like a single light <laughs> and then it said like 2025 just a black <laughs> screen <laughs> i started i'm like i'm like wow that's, that's so awesome. true that's awesome <laughs> I, mean, I thought ben, oh. ben Affleck does a great job as Batman. I thought he was very, um, like, the old Dark Knight character. 
Yeah, I personally really did like Ben Affleck. He was he's he was a really good Batman in my opinion, and I think that DC just ruined everything with him because they started him off really well. You know, they didn't treat the audience like we're stupid. You know, we have this war torn Batman who is new to this thing and he can lead the Justice League, but now they're going in a new direction, and I like it just as well. This feels a lot more closer to the comics because there's a there's a few key phrases that get repeated over and over that are very very. Uh, Batman in the comics crime fighting type deal and uh, I, 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 do you watch uh, trailers Chris yes okay all right so I don't so I did see in the trailer that there's a whole point where Batman is walking uh, with the cops and I, that was something that to me made me super excited for this movie and it totally was was done very well that he was actually a detective he wasn't just running around and punching people in the head and occasionally it just escalated to there being a villain with a theme it actually was a solid detective work movie and i think the villain they chose just per put that in perfectly so i really recommend it if you're a batman fan i think you won't be disappointed yeah i didn't know anything i think i had seen a trailer quite a while ago when they first released it but I, I probably stopped it halfway through because I didn't remember anything. I didn't know who the villain was. I didn't know anything about this movie except that um, Robert Pattinson was playing Batman. So right. I was I was pleasantly surprised by this film. I saw Tenet, um, which was a pretty good action movie, a little convoluted, but um, he played a really really good supporting role in that, and it was a serious role too. And you know, a movie about you know time travel, but a little bit more uh, a little bit more difficult. Uh, it, it really worked. So I, after that movie, I actually had a lot of hope for him. I'm like, oh, he can play a solid character, and it's not cheesy. It's not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't fall flat. It works really well. So I was expecting good, and I, I got great. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. Mm -hmm. I saw Tenet, and that made me go, okay, I'll give him a shot as Batman. So um, at least Batman doesn't twinkle in this movie. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something that Robert Pattinson said was uh, he didn't want to, you know, something about like bodybuilding, he didn't want to overdo it. And they actually make that a good point in the movie is that he's not jacked. He's shredded. He's very lean. You know, he's fighting crime and stuff like that. But he's not invincible. He's just very good at what he does. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Which I think is awesome. There's a lot of moments where you see him and you're like, damn, I thought he'd be like a lot bigger than that. But, yeah. you know, you think about how fast he moves. It works really well. Yeah. So maybe uh, maybe uh, sometime in the near future we'll do a mini episode and talk about it in depth with spoilers and stuff. Um, hmm. So, all right, folks, today we are continuing our series within the series about helping you, the listener, to introduce others to horror films. Now, we're working on a video series about that topic as well, which will cover, um, it'll cover a wide variety of films, shows, books, video games, other media. So, uh, once that's started, we will let you know when it's released. For now, here on the podcast, we are keeping things simple and recommending that people who may or may not know anything about horror films and or are afraid that all horror movies are gruesome or too scary, that is not the case. We've started with an analysis of the Universal Classic Monster movies, and so far we've discussed pretty much all the major Universal horror franchises from the 30s and 40s, including Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Wolfman, all that stuff. So today, we're going to leap ahead into the 1950s and tackle the three Creature from the Black Lagoon films. 
The Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, Revenge of the Creature from 55, and The Creature Walks Among Us from 56. Now, if you're able to, please check out those films and then come back for our discussion of another beloved classic horror franchise. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Woo woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now. couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before, in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. A geology expedition in the Amazon uncovers fossilized evidence, a skeletal hand with webbed fingers, from the Devonian period that provides a direct link between land and sea animals. Expedition leader Dr. Carl Maia orders his two assistants to stay in camp while he goes back to the Marine Biology Institute in Brazil. Carl reunites with his friend and former student, ichthyologist Dr. David Reed. David works at an aquarium in California, but more recently he's been a guest at Carl's Institute in Brazil to study lungfish. David persuades his boss, the financially minded Dr. Mark Williams, to fund a return expedition to the Amazon to look for the remainder of the skeleton. Soon after Carl leaves camp, a Piscine amphibious humanoid, a living member of the same species from which the fossil originated, becomes curious about the expedition's camp. When its sudden appearance... Can you guys hear that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Frightens the assistants, they panic and attack, and in response, the enraged creature kills them both. The return expedition group travels aboard the tramp steamer Rita, captained by the crusty Lucas. The expedition consists of David, Carl, Mark, David's girlfriend and colleague Kay Lawrence, and another scientist, Dr. Edwin Thompson. When they arrive at the camp, they discover Carl's assistants had been killed while he was away. Lucas suggests it was likely done by a jaguar, but the others are unsure. A further excavation of the area where Carl found the fossil turns up nothing. Mark is ready to give up the search, but David suggests that perhaps thousands of years ago, the part of the embankment containing the rest of the skeleton fell into the water and was washed down river, broken up by the current. Carl says the tributary 
empties into a lagoon. Lucas calls it the Black Lagoon, a paradise from which no one has ever returned. The the scientists decide to risk it, unaware that the amphibious gill man that killed Carl's assistants has been watching them. Taking notice of the beautiful Kay, the creature follows the Rita all the way downriver to the Black Lagoon. Once the expedition arrives, David and Mark go diving to collect rock samples from the lagoon floor. After they return, Kay goes swimming and is stalked underwater by the gill man, who then gets briefly caught in one of the ship's drag lines. Although it escapes, the creature leaves a claw behind in the net, revealing its existence. Subsequent encounters with the gill man claim the lives of Lucas's crew members before the creature is captured and locked in a cage aboard the Rita. It escapes during the night, attacking Edwin, who was guarding it. Kay smashes the creature with a lantern, driving it off, but Edwin is severely injured. Following this incident, David decides they should return to civilization. Mark, who is obsessed with capturing or killing the creature, objects. As the reader tries to leave, they find the Gilman has blocked the lagoon's entrance with fallen logs. While the others attempt to remove the logs, Mark is mauled to death while trying to capture the creature single-handedly underwater. The Gilman then abducts Kay and takes her to its cavern lair. David, Lucas, and Carl chase after the creature, and Kay is ultimately rescued. The creature is riddled with bullets before retreating to the lagoon, where its body sinks to the watery depths. <laughs> okay, first impressions, guys. Uh, so, I remember first seeing this on TCM as a teenager. I enjoyed it a lot. So, that was the last time I saw it, actually. This time around, I probably... I probably enjoyed it just as much. Uh, maybe not in the same vein as like some of the other series that we covered, but uh, it's still a favorite of mine. I really like this one. Nice, Spence. Yeah. Uh, I had seen this before, but when I was very little, so rewatching it again, I was uh, pleasantly surprised at how good this was overall. I was, I you know, a lot of these movies, you know, have a kind of a bad rap for being maybe not as good, but this one definitely had a lot of care put into it, and you could tell. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I definitely saw this on TV when I was a kid. Um, one of the old horror shows that was on, and uh, I always loved it. I've watched it many times over the years. Um, I have to say, for me, the creature sort of rivals my my love for the Wolfman. They both sort of hold a similar spot in my heart. Um, this was definitely one that that scared me when I was a kid, but it also simultaneously captured my imagination. So. Uh, I feel like it, it's just so well done. I was again, like you said, Spence. I was pleasantly surprised, like how well it holds up to this day. Mm-hmm. So we'll jump into the um, cast and crew here. Uh, it was directed by Jack Arnold, who also did Tarantula, which I think was the same year. Um, he directed This Island Earth and um, Revenge of the Creature, as well as his masterpiece, The Incredible Shrinking Man. And uh, there's another one I didn't mention here. It came from outer space. Was one that he worked on. <sighs> Um, he worked all the way up to the 80s, and I remember seeing his name as a kid on like Gilligan's Island. Like I think he did the first five or six Gilligan episodes. Um, the Brady Bunch, Wonder Woman, The Hardy Boys, Buck Rogers, Love Boat, just a, a shit ton of movies and TV shows. Um, I knew his name sounded familiar when I saw it on the credits. I'm like, I'm like, wait, I'm like, wait a minute. Like, isn't the same sitcom director? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from uh, Brady Bunch of Gilligan's Island. So yeah, yeah, when so just hearing that, I'm like, oh wow, that's very cool. Nice little bit of trivia. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna correct myself here. He didn't do the first few Gilligans. It was Richard Donner who did those. But Jack Arnold definitely that's did right. quite a few Gilligan episodes after right. that. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this was produced by a guy named William Allen, who started off as an actor. He was part of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater acting troupe. Um, he participated in the infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast when it occurred. 
Um, and he's also the dude, he plays the, the faceless reporter, or rather the reporter whose face we never see in Citizen Kane. Ah. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah. yes, I know. That's yep. him. Um, he kind of came up with this idea. I have this a little bit more detailed later in my notes, but basically he was at a Orson Welles party, and I think there was a cinematographer that basically told this story about a half-fish, half-man like, uh, that lives in the Amazon, comes out once a year, grabs a chick, and goes back. And um, whether or not... I mean, the guy claimed he could prove it with a photo, but whether or not he ever did that, nobody really knows for sure. Um, but... So this sort of kicked around in the back of William Allen's he head, and then when he finally became a producer eventually, he decided to take that and turn it into a movie. And originally, I guess, he was going to call the film The Pisces Man. And there was a, I'm not going to go into great detail about the differences of what the original film was supposed to be, but um, there was a bad guy in it, a clear bad guy, um, who ended up being the character of Mark in the final version that we saw. But then um, the bad guy would use Kay as bait to catch the creature. So um, he also, um, it's not in the notes here, but he also co-produced, I'm sorry, he produced a lot of the films that Jack Arnold directed, like It Came From Outer Space and This Island Earth, and I think even Tarantula. Um, hmm. And then this movie was written by Harry Essex, who basically, he took uh, full credit for this movie, but it was sort of a joint effort. Um, Harry Essex also wrote It Came From Outer Space, um, The Cremators, oh, and a good John Wayne film, The Sons of Katie Elder. Um, another guy who did the screenplay was Arthur A. Ross, who also worked on Satan's School for Girls and The Creature Walks Among Us, which we'll be talking about later on. And a guy named Maurice Zim sort of is the guy that helped put the story together. Um, and he didn't do too much, just like a, a handful of things and several episodes of Perry Mason. Hmm. So then our cast is Richard Carlson as Dr. David Reed. And, uh, you know, he did tons of stuff all the way into the 70s. I mean... I remember him from The Amazing Mr. X. It came from outer space, of course, and Valley of the Guanji, which is Cowboys versus Dinosaurs. You guys seen that one, right? I heard of it. I haven't seen it. Spence, you saw Valley of Guanji, right? Not in years. Boy, you have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't really mean anything if I can't remember it. <laughs> oh, man. We'll have to do a show on that one sometime. It's a great um, Harryhausen uh, special effects extravaganza. Cowboys yeah. versus Dinosaurs. Can't go wrong. <laughs> Uh, then, of course, Julia or Julie Adams plays Kay Lawrence. Uh, she's super hot in this. Yes. Um, she, she just passed away in 2019 at age 92. And um, she did a ton of Westerns before this. This was, I think, the only genre film that she did. Um, it, uh, tons and tons of TV shows. But I did want to point out that Universal insured her legs for this movie. <laughs> I think wow. the reason they because they've done that to several act, actresses and I think the reason they do it as sort of a publicity stunt right right oh possibly yeah yeah um, and then of course Richard Denning plays Dr. Mark Williams who's a total dick in this movie <laughs> mm -hmm. um, he acted until the 1980s he also did a lot of westerns prior to this as well tons of TV shows afterwards including uh, he played the governor on Hawaii Five-0 which I didn't realize when I was doing the research that Hawaii Five-0 ran for 12 freaking seasons <laughs> I didn't know that wow yeah Jeez. and one of the cool thing I found out is um, he was married to Evelyn Onkers who you guys may remember, she played Gwen Conliffe in The Wolfman. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh! Yeah. Um, then Antonio Marino plays Dr. Carl Maya. He's the guy who finds the hand at the beginning and puts the team together. He did a shit ton of stuff starting in the silent era. 
So uh, he's got a long career there. Um, another long career is Nestor Paiva, who plays Captain Lucas. He, of course, returns in Revenge of the Creature. And um, he was in Mad Men of Mandoras, and they saved Hitler's brain. And then, of course, one of my favorite character actors, Whit Bissell, plays Dr. Edwin Thompson. I'm sorry, Whit Bissell. <laughs> uh, he's just an amazing character actor. You know, we could do a whole show on this guy. He was in The Time Machine, The Magnificent Seven, Soylent Green, uh, both I Was a Teenage Werewolf and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He was a regular on the TV show called Time Tunnel. Um, and I also remember him from a couple of Incredible Hulk episodes. Like The one that stands out to me is... Um, remember the two-parter where they put the giant dome over the Hulk and capture him? Yes. The red dome? Yeah. Uh, Prometheus, mm -hmm. I think, was the name of that one. He was in part two. He was one of the scientists. Oh, all right. Yeah. So That's one of my. That's actually one of my favorite episodes of the show. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah, where he's like kind of stuck in mid-transformation because of the radiation. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's a good one. I remember when this is a total sidebar, but I remember when that episode came out and reading about it in TV Guide. And for whatever reason, it was in the TV Guide or, or the newspaper. My mother and I were both kind of reading up on it. And we were under the impression that the whole season he was going to be stuck halfway. And I, as a kid, yeah. I was like, that's weird. How can they do that? How can they actually tell good stories, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was just only that, that two parter. Um, then, of course, the person who plays the Gill Man on land, or at least out of water, because he could be on the boat, was Ben Chapman. Um, uh, he was only in eight, eight films, but this movie is the one he's most remembered for. And then, of course, Rico Browning plays the Gill Man in all the underwater scenes. The dude is still alive at age 92. I, I was prepared to write Amazing. down that he passed away recently, but he's not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fans love him. Uh, he's got a small amount of credits, but he, he's done a lot of things, including writer, producer, stunts. Um, he created and directed several episodes of Flipper, and he also worked on a show called Gentle Ben. Um, but... One thing I learned recently that I did not know, he directed the famous Frogman underwater battle scene from the James Bond film Thunderball. Interesting. Which that that I love. I love Frogman underwater battle scenes, so. Um, it's an oddly <clears throat> specific love. What? It's an oddly specific love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, tweet his own, man. That's right. <laughs> so, uh one Jack Arnold, the director's quoted as saying you know the feeling when you're swimming and something brushes your legs down below? It scares the hell out of you if you don't know what it is. It's the fear of the unknown. So I decided to exploit this fear as much as possible in filming Creature from the Black Lagoon. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, that is really cool. That reminds Definitely me of the opening scene job. from Jaws where the chick is. And we'll see some parallels to that as well. But the Yeah, the I made a lot. Yep, I made a lot of notes about that. Oh, good. <laughs> because they're, yeah, because uh, you watch this movie there, you could tell Spielberg saw this prior to Jaws. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in the in the novelization, um, or it was actually a novel before it was a movie, so it's not a novelization, right. but um, she's swimming and she feels something brush past her leg. And when she reaches down, the leg is gone, like just above the knee or something. And that's how razor sharp the shark was that it just felt oh, like wow. something brushed her and she didn't realize it took the whole leg. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's pretty scary. Uh, yeah, that this, is pretty scary. This film was filmed in 3d, uh, was pr projected using a polarization method instead of the, the red and blue filters. Um, the audience wore the gray uh, polarizing filters, which is most commonly used today. 
Uh, are they even still releasing movies in 3D? I remember like when the Avengers came out, it was a big deal. Not as much, I feel like, as like say, oh, I don't know, let's say uh, 10 or so years ago, particularly when Avatar came out in 09, that's when the craze sort of started again, then it peaked and then it went downhill. Uh, I'm not seeing as much these days anymore. I, I, I just yeah, find that I don't care. I, I, I like like the older films. I'd love to see those in 3D, but the new ones, it's like I'm not paying the extra three bucks to see yeah. them in 3D. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like 3D should be more reserved for movies like this, you know, scary movies that, you know, you're really kind of excited for. You kind of have an idea of what it's going to be walking into it. You don't exactly walk into the creature from the Black Lagoon expecting a slasher film, right? Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. But but the only thing was with this movie, upon watching it, maybe because I wasn't watching it in a 3D environment, uh, the same goes with the sequel, I don't really see what the 3D elements would have been upon watching this. I was like, wait, I was like, wait a minute, what am I missing here? Like, what was supposed to be in 3D? Right, right. In fact, more so in the second one, there are scenes where you go, oh, that more was so 3D. in the second yeah. one, yeah. And it's funny, I totally forgot to put this in the notes, but um, I remember as a kid, dry, uh, riding my bicycle to the next town over to go to a, a, I think it was a store 24. It was a convenience store, and to get our free 3D glasses because they. Um, I'll put a picture of these in the in the show notes too, which I've I have published them before. Um, they're basically they're 3D glasses with the creature on them, and ah. the local channel I think it was Channel 56 played it, uh, which is now the CW in Boston played um, the creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D one night. Oh wow! So in fact, I'll I'll post a link to it too. I have a bunch of those things and the TV guide ads uh, on the Retro TV Guides page. Nice. Um, what's interesting is that we're going to shoot this in color, which would have been wicked cool, uh-huh. especially at that time. Like movies like This Island Earth and stuff, like all those color films, War of the Worlds, looked really good. Um, but it would have cost seven hundred fifty thousand to do that and the three D, so they decided not to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, for for that time and that kind of money, yeah, no, that's that's really expensive for the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you look at color stills from this movie that are online. I mean, it's gorgeous, particularly when you look at the creature in color. You're like, oh, wow. Now, imagine if that was, you know, a color movie. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been cool. Even I think I read somewhere that Jack Arnold said, because uh, around the time when the um, the Legacy Collection came out on DVD, I think Ted Turner was still colorizing shit. And yeah. he kind of said, yeah, he would have liked to have seen uh, uh, a colorized version of this film because they couldn't do it in color initially. Mm. I'd be interested in seeing that. Yeah. And like, and I'm, and I'm not usually for colorizing black and white movies because I tend to make the colors look, uh, look weird. Uh, but somehow I feel like it would work here. Yeah. I was watching, I think Turner was showing uh, Gilligan's Island episodes on like TNT or something. And like, yeah. you'd see the bush moving in the wind and the bush was green, but then it would move. And then all of a sudden it would, it like the background would be green that where there was no bush because it blew away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was just terrible. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Col- colorization can be blasphemous. I mean, can you imagine if they colorized Casablanca? You're like, no, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, one thing I found online that I thought was interesting was the Gill Man, like King Kong, and we're going to talk about some of the parallels here too, threatens society's relationship boundaries. The creature shows distinct interest in the female member of the expedition, Kay. At first, he's bashful. He's a bashful observer of the woman's playful swimming, and he demonstrates empathy empathy through mimicry. As long as distance is maintained, there's 
there's harmony among the characters. However, when the guildman ventures into Kay's air-filled world, her reaction to his appearance is surprised by a scream, and the peace is shattered, the men are spurred into violent action, society represented by the men of the expedition cannot abide by the creature's attention to Kay. When he finally closes the gap between Kay and himself, taking her away from the men who dismantle the Earth's crust and threatens his independence, a showdown occurs between the Gilman and David, her other suitor. With the help from his rifle-toting comrades, David claims Kay for himself. He then asserts his dominance by permitting the Gilman to return broken into the water. The pairing of unlikely, unlike characters is not tolerated, and the taboo against intimacy between individuals of different race, class, or, as in this case, species, is reinforced. That's really cool, and it's so true. I mean, uh, in my notes, I often wrote down um, a lot of comparisons to King Kong, such as this one, but one that stood out for me that made me do a double take as I was watching was um, at one point you hear Dr. Reed say, I know what happened to Carl's men. I had to do a double take because I remembered Carl Denham in in the original King Kong movie, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought that I thought that was a very interesting. Co- uh, at first, I was like coincidence, but then as I kept watching, I was like, "This can't be a coincidence. This has there there has to be a direct um, inspiration here going on," uh, which I applauded for because that's what makes it a good movie is that is that deeper side that this movie has. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- there's that, but there's also this point of they're they're scientists, you know. They're, there's a very clear point in the movie is that they're there for research purposes. So the weapons they have is like for the occasional very big fish, right? It's not meant for a you know a, a humanoid gillman who's pretty smart. So yes, there's this whole like you know you can't go you can't you know get the girl with the gillman. But there's also a point of they invaded his home, and they make that clear with Lucas's character. You know, he's a local. He kind of knows some of the, the local legends and stuff. And they make it clear that they invaded his home, and they're, you know, trying to kill him or capture him or something like that. And up until this point, who's the most famous doctor that you can think of? It's Dr. Frankenstein, right? Mad scientist. Yeah. Up until this point, the idea of, like, actual scientific research and not harming the environment was... You know, I, I can't imagine it was on everybody's minds, but they had characters that kind of represented every every major point of view. So there's this man versus nature on top of this nature trying to invade on society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. And one thing I read too, the producer William Allen basically said um, he kind of wanted this to be King Kong on water. You know, because mm-hmm. you've yeah. you've got a lot of the same themes, but it's confined to the Amazon as well as. Um, you know, he he purposely left the creature's death at the end. Spoiler alert: uh, ambiguous. So, in case they wanted to do a sequel. Huh. Yeah, interesting. I mean, even back in the fifties, they were kind of thinking about that. They kind of knew that that was an option. Yeah, and I don't have it in my notes here, but somewhere, pretty early on, they decided to make a sequel. So hmm. they were they huh. were planning it very early on. I think just about when this movie was released was when they kind of knew it was going to be a hit. You know, and that's one of the things too is that this film is one of the first times where it's sort of a direct sequel to the previous film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, and I mean, for me personally, this when you think of, you know, the universal monsters, right? We think of, you know, something similar to the Monster Squad. We've got Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Gilman. But the Gilman came like a decade later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He came 6 years after the last real appearance of pretty much all the major characters. So I was a little shocked when you pointed out that it was made in the 50s. I was like, wait a minute, what? This came later? I thought this was like right in the thick of everyone else. But he was, you know, 
uh, it was a good enough film to put him on the map with everyone else and kind of you know be remembered as a really really good villain to have yeah what yeah. did you say to me spence after we watched the first one you said he was like the little brother or something oh yeah <laughs> yeah i basically said like oh you know the gill man is kind of like the like the little brother who's like kind of cool and you want to keep him around but like you know he's not as well known in the friend group as everyone else <laughs> <laughs> we like him you know he's, he's cool that's funny he's an okay he's an okay guy I mean, even in later movies, you know, when they show the Gilman in the in Universal does stuff, he's not exactly a complex thinker, but he's definitely not a a grunt either. Right. Well, well, the Same whole complex, well, the whole complex thinker thing. I would sort of argue when we get to the uh, to the third movie, but because there's a lot going on there that's pretty complex that you don't really expect. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll get True, to but he's no, he's no, he's no Dracula. Is really what I mean. Like he's no mastermind of the whole situation. Even, even you know, I keep comparing to the Monster Squad. That's the one thing I can think of is when he shows up in a in a later um, installment of uh, Universal Horror Monsters. He picks up you know Dracula's coffin, throws it out there. Like you know, he was there to help, and <laughs> he was strong in that, and he was strong in this too. Oh yeah. <laughs> he crushed dudes' heads. That was his whole mo of killing people was yeah. crushing them with his massive. Arms. Oh my god, poor Wick right. Thistle. He must have broken his skull. <laughs> Did you know the Gilman wasn't supposed to show up till about halfway through the film? But Universal spent so much money in the costume, the higher ups are like, no, 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 you're putting it in earlier. <laughs> I, I actually like that. I actually think it works for the movie because we get so much connection to it and it's so humanoid right like you know we we get a, a clear point of like yeah they're scientists okay you know they're not bad guys they're not going in with malicious intent but then you know this is whole point where you know hey we're in his home and we we've seen him now like you said through mimicry he's swimming with with k like right under her very stealthily and yeah. we can see him clearly but she's not even noticing him and i mean they call it the black lagoon for probably a good reason yeah yeah, and that whole shot looking up at her swimming is, again is reminiscent uh, from Jaws, from yeah. the, seeing the mm -hmm. girl swimming across the top of the the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I wanted to mention Bus Wedmore, Bus <laughs> Bud Westmore, not Bus Wedmore, um, who replaced Jack Pierce at Universal. Uh, he did, did an outstanding job with the suit. Uh, he did have help on the design, but ultimately, I feel the suit still holds up today. Well, we should also mention, too, that he's part of the famous Westmore family who did make up for many movies. Um, his brother was George Westmore, who did make up for Gone with the Wind. And then uh, Mike Westmore, uh, who was Bud Westmore's nephew, George's son, uh, did the makeup for Rocky, Raging Bull, and even won an Oscar for Mask uh, with uh, Cher and uh, Eric Stoltz. Wow. I did not notice that. I mean, I yeah, did not yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. He also, one of the people that helped Bud Westmore was Millicent Patrick, and she was the artist who designed the creature. Um, and the, the studio put her on a press tour about it because they figured, well, she's a looker, so we could put her out there and help promote the film. And so she was promoting and showing her drawings, and Westmore hated that. He did not like the fact that they put her out there. He always tried to take credit for most or part of the costume design. Like there was one situation where um, whenever the press was coming in, to um, talk to about the movie that as it was being made, he would make the people that were working on the stuff leave and make it look like he was doing it all himself. And there was one particular one where there was a guy that was doing sculpting on, I, I believe it was the headpiece, and 
one of the producers or somebody went up to him and warned him that Bud Westmore was going to do that. So sure enough, a few hours later, Westmore comes in. He's like, oh, hey, man, you, you're doing such a great job. You know what? Why don't you take the rest of the day off? And the guy's like, well, no, I'm almost done with this. I'm just going to finish it now. And he's like, no, 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 just take the rest of the day off. And he's like, no, no, I, I'm fine, you know, Mr. Westmore. I'm just going to finish this now. So Bud Westmore gets, leaves in a huff comes back later with the press and then he just walks over ignores the guy that was working on the sculpting grabs a tool and holds it up and he's like literally taking photos with the press but the other dudes in the background actually working on the mask <laughs> oh jeez <laughs> oh man uh, so yeah he was kind of, kind of a, a dick from from what I've read and what I heard I actually heard all that that story on the um, the commentary which finally Chris I get to listen to the commentary on one of the films that we talked about <laughs> I that's that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, so we never have time. But um, so there's a couple of things in this I wanted to mention that they meant that they talk about in the film, uh, the Devonian Age. Um, for those who have watched the film and wonder if they made that up, they didn't. The Devonian period is real. Uh, it's a period in geological time and in geologic time, an interval of the Paleozoic era that follows the Silurian period. No, not the Silurians from Doctor Who. Um, and precedes the Carboniferous period, spanning between about 419.2 million and 358.9 million years ago. So it, it really is sort of what they determine as the, the place in history where creatures came out of the sea and evolved into land animals. Yeah, I love that. You know, I and something I like also about the this movie and the later ones is they kept it consistent. You know, my suspension of disbelief gets broken when the rules of the universe get broken, for the most part. Uh, so you know, when they kind of establish that, oh, you know, he's from this period, and you know, we had we have evidence that there were fish coming on land, and then it's kind of reasonable now to think that okay, we had. But you know, fish that resembled uh, apes, but still fish. You know, he still had gills. They called him the gill man, but he was you know barely man, just shaped like one, and had a lot of great features. I mean, I love the design of the suit. We were you know talking about uh, Westmore, and the design of the suit overall is awesome, and there's so much detail. I remember we watched a little bit of one of the um, extras that came with the DVD, and they showed that. Um, all the scales on his body, for the most part, were like individual pieces that got added onto the suit. So it had that that feeling of like proper scales, like fitting over each other. Right. And I thought that was an awesome just detail to have. And they, you know, they established, you know, he can come out of water for a little bit of time. And when they capture him in the middle of the movie, they underestimate his strength. But he's sitting there in a very ominous look on his face. <laughs> Which it's, it's his only look on his face, but he's looking up at everybody from the water and just not moving, and you're like, <laughs> not sure if he's thinking or not. Yeah, that's a whole creepy scene. Yeah, they did a really good job, I think, with with the the whole design, and I'm kind of like actually for once in favor of the studio where they actually show the creature a lot because this thing is tough, and they make that clear as well. You know, it's not it's not just one. You know, one good fight at the end where we finally, you know, the, the the heroes and the you know the monster get to face off. Like, there's a lot of different fights that the Gilman wins. Oh yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. I love that. And you know, there's a lot to it that we'll get into as as we reach them in the notes. Um, but one of the things that they talked about was 
the fact that this guy, uh, this Gilman exists, they have a discussion about how man is going to have to adapt to new worlds, new worlds if they're going to survive on other planets. And the, what, I, what blew me away is that they're still talking about that kind of thing today. You know, they're saying mm-hmm. that like astronauts that go into space, the, anti, uh, the, the lack of gravity is not good for them. Their eyeballs start to separate after a while because they're just little, you know, pouches of fluid. Um, and, you know, they've talked about for other creatures to be uh, existing on other worlds, like let's say uh, on the moon of Titan, you know, which is a water kind of a water planet, maybe creatures that live there are octopus type creatures or, or you know, sea creatures of some kind. So we'd have to somehow adapt if we were going to try and live there. Right. Something I also like about that is that when they see the Gilman, they see the future of mankind and they don't necessarily see... Uh, you know, you know, there's a couple characters who are financially minded, but you know, the whole man versus nature thing. The big focus is how can we improve man and not debilitate nature for right. the most part. They're not saying, oh, the Amazon has all this to offer. They're like, no, we can make something out of this. You know, this one specimen can can give us wonders for the whole species of humanity. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. I like that. <laughs> and and also, I think they saw him as sort of a missing link. You know, mm-hmm. between yeah. sea and, and land animals. Uh, funny funny you say that, actually, because I don't know if anybody remembers the animated film from, I believe it was DreamWorks, Monsters vs. Aliens, where they had a bunch of, uh, oh, yeah. um, a bunch of monsters. The, the Gill Man is referred to as the missing link. Oh, that's right. That's his, that's his whole like, like whole thing, and he pops, you know, he pops out of this this iceberg, and you know, he terrorizes the local beaches, which I mean, it's kind of a pretty similar to the second movie. So, so as opposed, as opposed to Sasquatch being missing link, it's uh, the Gill Man, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, very cool. I think it's pretty. Fu- I think it's pretty funny that you mentioned that. I didn't even it didn't even put two and two together, but I'm like, oh, that actually makes perfect sense for the yeah. intentions behind the movie. That's hilarious. I forgot about. I forgot that that was his name. I haven't seen that in a while. Yeah. One thing as a side note, I wanted to bring up. There's a blooper that I discovered yesterday when I was watching the commentary. When the the reader is first entering the narrow passage to the lagoon, there's a telephone pole in the background. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's like it's so tall. It's like above the trees, and it's not just the pole. It's the got the crossbar at the top. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's no way around that one. <laughs> but I always thought it was funny, like when the hand comes out of the water. I remember as a kid going, "Well, can it see with his hand?" Because just the hand would pop up and almost look around and then go back in again. So yeah, I think that was more of an effect of a dramatic effect, just for the audience to know there's a creature there, rather than it, rather than it actually doing anything. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and plus um, when that happened, I'm like, oh, yep, you know, there it is. There's a classic hand reaching for the ankle moment. I mean, you see that's been done to death ever since this movie was released. Yeah. <laughs> and that was one thing um, they said that uh, I think the the studio heads basically said after this movie came out, they they looked at other directors and producers and said, this is the standard now. All, all of our movies are going to mm-hmm. be like this one. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's pretty good. And even when it does happen, though, it's, you know, it's it's feasible to think that, like, okay, yeah, it's a, it's an effect, but also he's like, there are new people now, you know, he knows that there are creatures that are sapient like him, you know, they kind of look like him, and he doesn't underestimate the humans really at all. He's very stealthy, he moves around the whole movie, so his his taking his time actually is, I think, to me, a sign of, like, a strategic attempt at how he would approach things because clearly they go on land enough to have legs but not enough to have lungs (laughs) right right 
So I mean, it might be a might be a threat level thing of like you know if I put my hand out and I I feel pain, I don't need to go above those the surface anymore. Oh yeah. But if I don't, maybe I can maybe I can walk around and brute force my way through these you know these hairless apes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and one thing too I wanted to mention is that um, Jack Arnold uses a lot of monsters eye view shots. Uh, sort of like he did previously in It Came From Outer Space. So we're seeing mm-hmm. from the, the creature's point of view, which I thought was cool, and that kind of adds to it, you know, to him yeah. being stealthy moving around. There's a lot of moments where he's just sitting there in the grass, but they make it clear where he is in relation to everybody else. Yeah. Right, yeah, it's v- very well shot. And then the underwater scenes were, were incredibly well shot, too. Oh, yeah. Well, it made me wonder, too, how they capture those shots, like what kind of cameras and like, you know, where was a photograph? Like, was it like a tank uh, in a studio backlog where they, you know, do they really go into, um, you know, uh, do they really go into like a, um, into uh, real waters or what have you? Yeah, well, that's one of the things I learned in the commentary was they actually did all the underwater shooting in Florida. All, ah. all the acting was done in California. And um, they had to develop a special camera to go underwater. Not only just a special camera to go underwater, which I think they had some at the time, but they had to make it a 3D camera and have it be mobile. So you know how, especially back then, those film cameras were ginormous. Oh, yeah. Um, This one had to be carried around or swam around or whatever underwater. Um, So they did. So whenever you see the actors or with the exception of the creature, um, whenever you see the actors underwater, those are stand-ins. Those aren't the actual actors. Gotcha. Because they couldn't possibly do it because they were simultaneously shooting with the actors in California. Um, mm. I forget where. I didn't actually write that down where they said in Florida it was. But Rico Browning, who played the creature in the underwater scenes, uh, I always as a kid just assumed he had an aqualung in his in his costume. And he didn't. He basically held his breath. And the way they did that was he had a a handful of guys that he picked as his safety guys. And so let's say you had the camera in the water. On one side of the camera on the bottom was a tank with an air hose and a safety guy. Then same thing on the other side of of the camera. So he'd be breathing out of the air hose. When they'd motion to him that it was action, he'd then, you know, let go of the hose and swim across the camera and then go to the other guy and grab the other hose. But there were times where he had to swim away from the camera or he would swim further out than they they planned because it was hard to see in that suit too. Um, and so it, what he, if he realized he was going to be in trouble and was out of air, he would go limp. And that's how the safety guys knew, oh, we got to go grab him and bring him to the surface. Ah. And I mean, this guy was an Olympic-level swimmer. He's, he was like the third person to learn how to breathe using an air hose. And he was an expert at it before the movie. Like, he had just been doing it. Um, and it was funny, too, because he had to shove it through the mask first and then another couple inches to his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess he was a, he was a cave... Di- uh, a cave uh, what do they call it? Yeah, a cave diver. And that was his job, was he would swim into underground caves and map them out. Oh wow! So he could hold his breath for a long time. That's, that's impressive to me. It's what's been so. That's terrifying. <laughs> that, is, that is awful to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Massive respect. I I could never as as cool as that is. Oh, I couldn't go into uncharted waters intending to chart them. Oh, especially <laughs> no, that suit. You. The suit was skin tight. Um, and you know it would fill with water. So like there was one scene where, if you remember, he's kind of climbing up the rope on the side of the boat. He couldn't actually yeah. do it because not only was the suit 
too heavy because it was waterlogged, but his hands were wet. So they put a little ladder underneath him. And it's funny because he's climbing up and then they, the, the humans on the boat knock him off and he goes falling backwards. But it's clear that he's standing up in the water on something <laughs> as he falls over. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's talk about Kay in, in this for a little bit. I, I posted an uh, I sent an article to you guys, Chris and, and Spence, and mm-hmm. we're going to post it in the show notes, too. Uh, Spence, did you get a chance to look at this article about the semiotics? I did not. I have it up here now. I didn't get a proper time to read it. Okay. Uh, Chris, you want to tell us a little bit about what it says? We don't have to read the whole thing. I think people should read it for themselves. But Yeah, sure. Um, so basically it kind of goes over how independent of a woman uh, how independent of a woman uh, uh, Kay is in this movie, unlike uh, what you saw uh, unlike what you saw typically for heroines at the time that this movie was made e- even before. So this really set a new precedence for how heroines uh, – how they were written into other movies is essentially what the article talks about. And it's so true. But the one thing that did stand out to me when watching the movie is even though she is an independent character, the men that surround her, they still treat her differently, much like they do in Kong, you know, going back to King Kong and, you know, other movies during that period where there's one character that says, oh, women can't go on expedition. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, things like that still made it very dated. But the character, the way it's written, is for the time ahead of its time. Uh, so that was nice to see a woman of in her position being so independent. Yeah, and it was interesting because um, one of the things in the article they point out is um, they, they, they point out a, a series of dialogue, I'm sorry, a scene with dialogue here where it yep. breaks the social stereotypes. Um, so Carl says, are you two married yet? And Kay says, no, no. David says we're together all the time anyway. We might as well save expenses. And Carl says, oh, do you ever hear of two living as cheaply as one? And Kay says, well, that's what I keep telling him, Carl. And David goes, I'm waiting for Williams to give her that raise. Then she can afford me. And <laughs> I never really realized before, but the, that whole scene, that, sh- that short amount of dialogue tells a lot. Um, it tells us oh, yeah. that they're having an extramarital relationship. Um, it, it, you know, like even in that scene, um, David's leaning on her uh, as he drives himself off, and she's, you know, she's helping him out. Um, this, the comment about her getting a raise implies that she's um, she's employed and is not financially dependent on anyone. Um, also, David's not threatened by that. Um, you know, and at the end of the scene. The three of them are sitting together in the boat, shoulder, shoulder to shoulder, which basically this matches her intellectual equality with her visual equality amongst the other scientists. So she's an equal with the rest of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, with the exception of like you know, you know the the violence, and I I can kind of see that you know that's when the the men spring into action of like we got to just make sure that a this boat, b this girl doesn't get killed, right, or kidnapped. <laughs> uh, but um. <laughs> But there's also a big point that they established very early on that even though she's not in the full inner circle and all this stuff, she's a she's an expert in her field. Right. She's the only one. She thinks she is she the she's not the ichthyologist. She's a oh that was my leg. Ow. Um, <laughs> uh, she is she. I can't remember what field it is, but she is an expert in her field and the only one at that. So she's a valuable asset to the team as a as a research as a researcher not just like an assistant not you know she's not david's plus one she is there for the same reason as everybody else and i, I don't know i really kind of kind of enjoyed that aspect of her yeah and you know she's not afraid to go out swimming and all this stuff which i mean we don't know there's a monster yet lucas is like hey you're out 
really far, you should come back. And, you know, it's more about actual danger, not about, oh, typical damsel in distress. Like, no, 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 there's an actual thing here that hasn't been established to the characters. So it works. Yeah. Does it doesn't doesn't um de- no I don't want to use the word degrade but it you know it doesn't devalue her in any way to have her be the first one to have an encounter with the creature right 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 mm-hmm. and it's interesting too because the article goes on to talk about how um what they're not really stereotypical and they're not a stereotypical couple obviously having a relationship without being married but he's not dependent on her and it doesn't he doesn't give a shit and she's not dependent on him and doesn't give a shit about that either. But th- they comfortably share each other's company without marital restrictions. So I thought that was kind of yeah. kind of a cool analysis. Mm-hmm. So, folks, like I said, it's a, uh, it's an article from a website called Medium.com. They're not affiliated with us. I've never heard of them. But uh, it's called Feminism and Semiotics in the Creature from the Black Lagoon. So I, I'll put it in the show, la- show notes. I think you guys should check it out. It's a short article. But, yeah, I, I mean, I really liked her character, too. Yeah, I did, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought she was, a, she was a fun character. And she wasn't a screaming queen. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I actually kind of enjoyed that too. That you know, she, she clearly wasn't a fighter, right? You know, it's you can absolutely write characters like that, and is absolutely zero to do with gender. She's not a fighter, but you know, she gets kidnapped. I think the only time you could be like, really, is when they're like, when he, he's kidnapping her and not just trying to kill her like everybody else. That's when I'm like, ah, oh, man. <laughs> besides that, besides, and I, I get it, right? It's just, it's for the plot. You know, it, it sold in the fifties. Right. So I, you know, I don't necessarily blame anybody, but it's just like when you watch sure. it, you're like, ah, oh, oh, we we could do this so much cooler now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we could make this so much more complex. I think didn't they make a movie? Who was didn't was it Guillermo del Toro? Oh yeah, the Shape of Water. I think. Yeah, wasn't that like a Gilman love story? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. The Shape of Water won Best Picture that year. I've never. Seen I didn't that. see that. Did you see that, Chris? No, I didn't see it. I, I'm familiar with it. Um, but I remember, you know, hearing about it of the time it came out and thinking I wanted to see it. I still do, especially now after watching this movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was interesting, especially like, like when when the creature's swimming under her. It, it, I read online a good phrase. It said it's a voyeuristic courtship with death as the likely outcome, be it his or hers. <laughs> <laughs> Which the you know the Gilman puts out a lot of death in this movie, I tell you. Oh yeah, he He's does. Got a high kill count, <laughs> shockingly high for a fifties film. <laughs> oh. oh man, like that first kill, Chris. You like that one, right? I like that first kill. Yeah, it was very good. Um, and uh, it, th- there was some genuinely scary moments uh, in the movie, um, and uh, you know it was a good use of the camera, and. You don't really see the creature's face for for part of it. Again, Spielberg wouldn't apply that with Jaws, although in Spielberg's case, it was more for practical reasons than it was right. um, stylistic, but it worked, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. There's another article, folks, I'm going to post in the show notes. It's uh, from a website called Film School Rejects. Again, no fili- affiliation, but it's sort of a shot-for-shot uh, analysis of the um, the first time we encounter the creature when he's falling her underwater and everything we've just been talking about. But this movie has a lot of scary moments. I mean, it does like when the, when the creature's pulling the boat from underneath. That another is another thing that reminded me of Jaws, especially when the winch mm-hmm. starts to break. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. I, yeah, that works. 
which is funny because Spence, I think when you and I watched this the other day, I, I, they showed them using the winch at a later point to try and pull the branches out from the front of the boat. And I, I remember going, geez, I hope they fixed that from when the gill man cracked it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, was a, that was a funny moment. I'm like, oh, yeah, they, they didn't really show us that they fixed it. But I mean, I, I guess so. You have to assume that they must have. <laughs> yeah. I'd, Something else, actually, I think that feeds into it is there's no stupid decisions, you know. Right. There's there's, there's no no characters that you're like, really, why would you go and do that, you know? Like, yeah. When when somebody gets killed, it's because they had no idea that a gill man was coming, or he actually got the drop on them in a legitimate fashion. You know, he actually snuck on board and was walking around and, you know, grabbed a dude and, re- and dropped into the water. And all that stuff. I, I really enjoyed that. I was kind of afraid of that, you know, because kind of, it's been a trope for a while. But I, I really enjoy watching intelligent characters and an intelligent beast, I guess. Yeah, and now uh, the stupid decisions, they, that was all saved for the sequel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's true. <laughs> I, you know, that's one thing Jack Arnold said about this movie is he wanted to have them all be intelligent characters making intelligent decisions. Yeah. Um, I guess, too, um, sort of a side note here, when the creature's walking on the boat, they actually, in his costume, they put, like, lead in the boots so that he had a hard time lifting his feet because they wanted him to sort of glide across the ground the same way he, That's smart. he glided in the water. That's smart, yeah. Which which kind of screws up the later scene where they find the wet footprints because clearly the feet were lifted up and put down. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> But there's one other kind of scene which almost looks like a goof, which is not really, but Spence, do you remember towards the end, the creature goes after one of the guys and he, he's got one, his left hand is up to the, going for the guy's shoulder and the right hand is down going for the guy's leg and he gets up to the guy, but when they cut to the reverse angle, he's got both hands, I think, like around the guy's head. Yeah. You know what uh-huh. happened there was he was supposed to lift the guy up, but they couldn't get the wiring to work. To, to you know, to lift him up so the creature oh. could pick him up and throw him, but they had already shot that scene. They were like, "Yeah, fuck it," and they left it, <laughs> and then yeah. just cut to the reverse angle and did whatever they did in the scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it works. Yeah, I really, I really didn't notice it immediately. I was just like, it's just in the heat of battle because you're trying to you know see two sides of the of the same coin, and he's a he's a slow mover. <laughs> at no, right. no point is, yeah. is he very fast on land, but he still manages to get his hands on people. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's it's not unreasonable that you know they're like okay cool he moves at t- ten feet you know per turn, and every time he moves it's very slow. But then either nobody expects it or they decide to go up to him and they're just shocked at how strong he is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of times in these old movies where the person's standing there screaming and the creature's like 20 feet away moving slowly. And it just reminds me of the dude in Austin Powers where the steamroller's coming at him. And he's just standing there screaming, yeah. no! <laughs> it's like you have plenty of time yeah. to move out of the way. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, when they were writing these movies, this was the the birth of real horror movies, right? This is the first 20 years that we've ever properly had them. So I guess they're like, well, what do you do when you see a gill man coming at you? I guess you, pa- I guess you panic and freeze. Yeah. <laughs> Which if you want to go by call of Cthulhu role-playing game rules, that that is one of the effects that can happen. If you lose sanity, um, yeah, you freeze yeah, in yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always yeah. do that in movies when characters do that. I'm like, Oh, failed a sanity check. 
I, I, I think like that too. And I even had a thought. I was like, you know, people people say like, oh, caring about your mental health is like, you know, is it weak or is it not? I'm like, no, 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 no. That's the same word, sanity. Right. <laughs> That's it's... what we're trying to trying to take care of here. And the Gilman is not good for for the sanity. And speaking of going toe to toe with the Gilman, that underwater fight is amazing. Oh, it yeah. is amazing. Yeah, oh, yeah. That that was my favorite fight that I've ever seen Universal put on, and I mean that rivals Frankenstein and the Wolfman in just yeah. how good it was. The, the one with him and Mark. Yeah, yeah. When they're underwater and, and Mark's got the Aqualung on, and they they you know moving all around, and you know, and the Gilman can't get his hands around him, but Mark also can't seem to get a proper blow on him, so they're just swimming around everywhere. Yeah, I, I yeah. Know, I really like that. Yeah. That was awesome. You know, and that's one thing, too, um, to, to differentiate between Mark and David under the water. They gave Mark one tank and David two, which I didn't actually notice watching mm. it, but they said that on the commentary. That was how you were supposed to be able to tell them apart. Oh, wow. Well. Um, but the creature takes a lot of punishment. He gets a harpoon in the back to start off with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I was thinking about that, but they made that very clear. I mean, they even set him on fire at one point. That's right. Yeah. They, yeah. they make, I mean, that kind of comes into play later in the third movie, but they did it differently, so I thought it worked. You know, like he his scales are really, really tough to take a lot of punishment. Yeah. So it totally worked for the for a lot of what they were doing and and how he was able to be so tough and it it allowed for you to have characters to okay we have a harpoon gun let's use it and they do and it doesn't work right mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. the thing that sucks <laughs> right and that that scene where you mentioned where he gets caught i think it was at the uh k smashes a lamp on his head or something yeah um mm -hmm. he if you notice it looked kind of odd the effect what it was was on a separate soundstage, they took another guy, a stuntman, and they put him in a Gilman suit and they lit him on fire. And then what they did was they superimposed that over the creature. Um, oh. And it, it kind of looks okay, but you can tell there's some kind of effect going on there. But I guess when people watched it in 3D, because the guy, uh, the stuntman on fire was probably too close to the camera or closer to the camera than Ben Chapman was on the boat that it threw the 3D off and it, the effect was completely lost. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, man. So. Oh, that's rough. But there's a couple of things I want to bring up. We talked about the Devonian era and how that was real. Um, there's other things, too, in this movie. Like, pretty much everything in this movie they mentioned is real. The lungfish are real. They're freshwater ripsidian vertebrates belonging to the order Dipnoi. Lungfish are best known for retaining ancestral characteristics with the osteochytes, um, including the ability to breathe air and ancestral structures with the sarcopter... I'm going to kill all these words. Sarcopterigi, <laughs> including the presence of lobed fins as well as, uh, as, well as a well-developed internal skeleton. Lungfish represent the closest living relatives of the tetrapods. They have teeth, and they're also omnivorous. So I, I'd always heard about lungfish, but I have a feeling the first time I heard about them was from this movie. Yeah, it's the first time I've heard of it, too. <laughs> not familiar, not familiar. Yeah, actually, to be honest with you, a lot of these terms that, that, that you just pointed out, never heard of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd heard of them, and I was like, that's so the Devonia. I'm like, that sounds real. Yeah. I was like, that, if it's not real, it's a really, really convincing one. Oh fiction, yeah, and you know it is. Well, you can, well, you can tell. Well, you can tell that they put work into the science behind this, unlike some of the previous entries that we've looked at. Like this, see, this to me felt the most scientifically accurate. 
yeah. to anything. Yeah. yeah, remember what was one of the other ones? We we're like, well, because science. <laughs> because I actually made that note in one in one of the um, in, one, in one of the later sequels to this. I had to make the because science thing because because <laughs> one because something happened. I think it was the third movie. It was so ridiculous, and I was like, oh yeah, because science. That's funny. <laughs> No, but this one, this one is uh, actually, it seems based in reality quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's real in this that I, it was funny, uh, I guess just over the years, I never thought about looking these things up, but um, rotenone is real. Uh, it's used in rat poison, I found out. It's, it's toxic oh. to not only insects and fish, but humans and animals as well. It's this odorless, colorless, crystalline isoflavone, which is used as a broad-spectrum insecticide, pesticide, uh, oh, pisticide, which means it kills fish, and pesticide. Uh, it occurs naturally in the seeds and stems of several plants, such as the jacama vine plant and the roots of several members of the fabaceae. Rotenone is more toxic to female rats than males, which I thought was an interesting fact. Mm. But yeah, so they're literally just throwing poison in the water and see, seeing what sticks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of works though. I, I don't, I don't remember if that one, if them like dropping it in the water works. But they eventually they come up with a solution. <laughs> they, they're like, okay, cool. Why don't we pressurize it and mix it with water, and then we could spray it in his face, and it works. Yeah, that's in the second movie. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. It, they did that in the first one. I don't think so. Yeah, because he was going to get the winch. And one of them had the had the spray thing. They did that. I remember because they were standing on the the boat. Oh with right, right. What's okay. Your face. They did that in the first right. movie, and I was like, I remember watching. I'm like, that is a big brain move. That's right, because he turned I, and I hit him in the face with it, and then he turned back and tied the chains around the 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 trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it, it worked. You know, it, it, at no point did they. Once again, not stupid decisions, but actively making intelligent ones, actually like trying to accomplish their goals. And, you know, eventually they do agree, like, let's leave. But he doesn't let them. Right. I right. thought that was very, very cool. Which you could never see the shark in Jaws do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you could see it like trying to damage the boat. But besides that. Right. No. <laughs> Another th cool thing about this movie is there's a lot of cool philosophy in this, and you know we're just going to touch on it a little bit here. But um, you know, one of the I think it was David says we're just beginning to learn about the water. Um, you know, admitting that we don't know anything, we don't know everything. <laughs> we know very little. Um, but then you've got Mark who wants to kill the creature, whether it be for proof of its existence or just have a trophy on his wall. Um, David wants to capture it alive. He's he's more of a I wouldn't say pacifist, but he's more compassionate um, than than yeah. Mark is. Mark's like, yeah, kill it, kill it, kick, take it alive, whatever. And David's like, no, we have to take it alive. Um, and then you know, it's this age-old argument between science and superstition when they first go into it because they're talking about like Lucas is telling them the legends and everything, and you know, well, is it real? Is Bigfoot real? Is the creature real or not? You know, and then they find out he is real. Oh. <laughs> All the best monsters have that, like, mysticism around them. I mean, let's face it, right? Dracula has, you know, has his legend. Uh, the Wolfman, he has a legend that comes with it. The Mummy, he has a legend that comes with it. So there's a lot of mysticism. And then probably the most famous one that everyone seems to forget is steeped in mysticism is Godzilla. Yeah. He's a, he's a local legend, right? So this whole, you know, having this scientific approach to this, you know, superstition is really really cool and it definitely i think is a, a key determining factor in 
what works for movies like this and what doesn't and what creatures get remembered and what creatures don't. Right. This, I agree. Yeah. No. And the same can be said for uh, for Kong. Even you know they're the, mm-hmm. the 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 people that inhabit his land that worship him. They're under a superstition as well. But then man comes in, interrupts the life. You know they want to capture it on film, and uh, then you know it just becomes a big big uh, whole disarray for the entire story. And then he's let loose into the big city. And then uh, you know there's that famous line. Oh, you know, yeah, it was beauty that killed the beast. But it's but there's a lot to be said about that, and the same could be said here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's man intruding on nature, and mm-hmm. you know, not only just intruding but disturbing what's going on there. You know, like the old the the people tearing down the rainforest shit. It's like why why you got to do that? You know, right, right, right. <laughs> Wiping yeah, entire yeah. species out that may only live in one cave in the world, and you just wipe them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, these monsters and creatures that we speak of, as far as they're concerned, they're just living their lives and, you know, and, and but but man comes in and, you know, disrupts everything. So, but it's, but it's like, uh, who is disrupting whom? Is it the creature that's messing with man or is man messing with the creatures? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could say Dracula's messing with man because right. he needs to survive. Frankenstein is the other way around because he didn't ask to be created. He's like a, a, a exactly. person who's born. He's just like, well, what's exactly. the fuck? I'm here. Why are you treating me like yeah. shit now? You know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so just to start to wrap this up, um, there was a, I found one of the best lines said in a horror movie. I think it was David who goes, we have to leave. We can't fight monsters. We're not equipped to do so. <laughs> Again, <laughs> yes. a smart line. Like you said, Spence. yes. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It's definitely a, um, it's a self-awareness, but not a cheesy horror movie self-awareness. It's it, it's it, it's so good. It's consistent. Once again, that's the thing that I love about certain movies is when the rules of the universe are consistent, and this just sticks with it. The characters doing their thing, and the Gilman doing his thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that the characters realize they they're gonna get their asses kicked if they stay there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, I also wanted to touch on the music here. Um... <laughs> um, 63% of this movie has music in it. And one of the things both Spence and I heard was it was because a lot of it was uh, underwater scenes with no dialogue. So right. they filled it with a lot of awesome music. Um, mm-hmm. This whole soundtrack is amazing, and it's a combination of Hans J. Salter, who, of course, did The Wolfman and a shit ton of other prior Universal oh. horror films, Henry Mancini, who was uncredited here, and Herman Stein is yeah. the guy that did the music we just played, the famous three-note theme whenever the creature appears. Mm-hmm. So what would you guys think of the soundtrack? I love the score here. So it's one of my favorites in this Universal lineup. Yeah, I'm I'm very uh, auditorially inclined, so I pick up on even in the background. I can pick up on other themes from other movies. Like they use the Wolfman theme, like yeah, a little bit Mm -hmm. in the background. They use the um, the one from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman a couple of times, and you know it's very very in the back. And I do like that the Gilman has his own sound. You know when you see him when the when they they we acknowledge his existence. There's this like you know tone of unease, and I think that adds to the the flavor of the whole movie and they use that also in um the Gilman's theme in king kong vs godzilla when king kong's fighting the giant octopus 
Oh. Oh, yeah. I remember when that came on TV when I was a kid at 8 o'clock at night on like Channel 56 and going, wait a minute, that's Creature from the Black Lagoon music. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. That is funny. Now, just to wrap up things here, there was an interesting um, kind of irrelevant footnote, but in, in 82, 1982, John Landis was pushing Universal to let him produce a big-budget remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I remember reading about it. I don't recall if it was Fangoria or Starlog, one of those magazines. Um, he had Rick Baker lined up and ready to do the makeup. Um, uh, it would have been based almost bump for bump on the original Gilman design. Um, Nigel Neal, who created the, the Quatermass series of stories and movies, uh, he was going to write the script. And there was even talk about bringing Jack Arnold back to direct, who he was only in the 60s at the time. And it all sounded, sounded exciting and classy and awesome. And then the studio decided to throw the money behind, behind Jaws 3D. So, bummer. Ah, uh, yes, that is a bummer. But... Um, you know, I could have seen John Landis having something to do with a, a remake because I mean, from have you read his book, uh, Monsters in the Movies? No, I haven't. So it's this really big, big book with like the, these like beautiful photos uh, of all these different creatures and history of monster movies. Having read that, I could have easily seen him not even just produce, even direct because, you know, he's big into those into those monster movies. Uh, if you know him well enough. But yeah, it is a shame that they did Jaws 3D instead. And oddly enough, I had compared the sequel to Jaws 3D, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spence, you might know John Landis from, he directed American Wolf in London. Oh, yeah. <laughs> another another great movie where the, the monster yes. gets completely killed at the end. <laughs> yep. But let, let me tell you, he, he is an exuberant personality. If you watch him in interviews, like he did an interview on uh, Kevin Potts' chat show. He talked for two hours and 42 minutes. At the time, he was the longest running guest on that show. That's hilarious. <laughs> and it was, and he just talked and talked. But I mean, he is, he's a great storyteller. I mean, it's a shame. Um, what had happened to him uh, on the set of the Twilight, the Twilight Zone movie? Zone, that, yeah, that that horrific, horrific accident. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but he he got acquitted from that because it... he did he did. Um, there's controversy for for that too, and I have my own yeah. <laughs> thoughts on that. But uh, you know, I mean, it's still still though. I mean, he's made some incredible movies over time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, John Landis has so many good films. So anyways, uh, final thoughts on Creature from the Black Lagoon. Chris? Um, this is one of my favorites. I really enjoy this one. Again, maybe not up there for me with, like, say, Frankenstein or Invisible Man or what have you, but I really like this one. Uh, there's a lot of genuinely scary moments, and it's well shot. Um, and as we've been saying the whole time, it's an intelligent um, monster movie. There are moments of it that are kind of your atypical B monster movie, but that that for me doesn't get into the doesn't get in the way of what is what is overall a very good movie. Oh yeah, yeah, Spence. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, eight out of ten. It's a solid movie on its own with the plot, the characters, and everything. I think that basically the whole movie is ahead of its time, except for some of the effects. Which you know they're limited in what they can do, right? So yeah. besides that, they they really made a solid solid monster movie with a monster that we we like, but we don't necessarily want to see him killing everybody. So it's a good <laughs> it's a good balance, and I think it's way ahead of its time for what it was doing. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think it still holds up to this day. It's very exciting. It's gripping. Um, it's one that you could show to someone if you're trying to get them into horror movies. You could start them out with this one. 
Um, it's it, it, it would seem a shame because you really should start with Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman. But um, like we said, it, he's the younger brother that's an equal with the other ones. Um, so it's a great introductory film. It's thrilling. It's action-packed. Um, it's quite different than a lot of the other films that were coming around at that time. So in my opinion, I, I think the costume design also holds up as one of the best monster costumes of all time. Um, mm. So I, I highly recommend this movie, too. I think people need to see it. And they, they showed it off, too. That was something that I was a little nervous about because I get it. Jaws is a giant shark, right? You know, once you learn that, it's not that hard to imagine what it is until you properly see it for yourself later in the movie. But this, they they were like, no, we're going to we're going to say have mystery and then we're going to show you what it can do. Right. There's a lot of great moments that you get all the angles with this thing. He's faster than everyone else in the water. Right. Legitimately. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You know, I, I love that you get to see it, see it in all its glory. And for once, I've never, never said this before in my life, but I think the studio made a good call by having them have more monster in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right, folks. So we are going to take a break here. And then when we return, we are going to discuss the sequel, Revenge of the Creature from 1955. <laughs> Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of the Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, 
hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. study a creature that, by all the laws of nature, should have died a quarter of a million years ago. They dared to bring him back alive from his haunts deep in the jungles of the Amazon. They dared to put him on display with the other denizens of the deep while thousands came to marvel and wonder. You know, I, I pity him sometimes. He's so alone, the only one of his kind in the world. If anything goes wrong, you head straight for the surface, you understand? All right, let's go. They dared to study him, to probe him, to tempt him with the lure of a woman's beauty, thinking that mere chains could hold in check the primeval forces that surged and roiled within this strange being from the dawn of time. One year after the events of Creature from the Black Lagoon, another group of people arrive at the lagoon to catch the Gilman. Having previously survived being riddled with bullets, the Gilman is ultimately captured and sent to the Ocean Harbor Oceanatorium in Florida as a visitor attraction, where he is studied by animal psychologist Professor Cleet Ferguson and ichthyology student Helen Dobson. Helen and Cleet quickly begin to fall in love, much to the chagrin of Joe Hayes, the Gilman's keeper. The Gilman takes an instant liking to Helen, which severely hampers Cleet's efforts to communicate with him. Of course, all goes gills up as the creature escapes, terrorizing the neighborhood while he tracks Helen down to a motel and steals her back. Riddled with bullets by local police, he heads seaward in a bid for freedom. Unable to stop thinking about Helen, the Gilman soon begins to stalk her and Cleet ultimately adopting her from a seaside restaurant where the two are at a party. Cleet tries to give chase, but the Gilman escapes to the water 
with his captive. Cleet and police arrive just in time, and when the creature services, police shoot him, and Cleet saves Helen. So, uh, what, what were your first impressions upon seeing this? Um, I, I definitely think it's a solid sequel. Uh, growing up, I always liked this one more than the third film, but after watching this uh, again this time around, my opinion kind of slightly changed. Uh, it's a fun monster movie, but I... I, this time around, I felt like it meandered a bit when it didn't need to, especially towards the the, the latter half of the, the middle portion. Um, but there's so many exciting scenes in it that it definitely holds up well, like the first one. Um, I wouldn't recommend this for a first-time view unless you've seen the, the first film first. Mm-hmm. How about you, Spence? Uh, I'm in the same boat. I definitely think it was a bit of a weaker sequel, that, uh, a weaker movie as a sequel to the first one. Uh, but I do think that they tried to do something different and you know even though it didn't have a whole lot of crazy consequences and didn't explore a whole lot of new we did get to see a lot more of the creature and a lot more of what the creature can do so i enjoyed that aspect there was a, there was a, there was a particular moment where i was like please do this thing and then he did and it was awesome <laughs> uh, which we'll get into in a second so i really liked it but it you know it is a weaker movie in my opinion to the first one i'm sort of in the same boat i mean i I just flat out didn't like this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's not quite on the same level as bad as like say like the Mummy sequels, uh, but close in my opinion. I mean, if anything, if anything, I found this one more unintentionally hilarious than it was probably supposed to be, and uh, <laughs> j- just just had really poor pacing. But yeah, we'll get to all that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the pacing was an issue here. So uh, once again, directed by Jack Arnold, um, he directs a uh, screenplay by Martin Berkeley. Um, I, he directs it, I thought, with guts and liveliness, allowing the creature to deliciously run amok. I, I did enjoy mm-hmm. those scenes. Yeah. Um, William Allen, the producer, wrote this as well. Uh, we talked about him before. He produced over 30 films, uh, including these three, as well as This Island Earth, Tarantula, The Mole People, The Deadly Mantis, and one of my favorites, uh, a lesser-known film called The Colossus of New York, uh, which is a great movie if you guys get a chance to see that. Um the first creature, like we said, was his idea, um, and he wrote this one, and he also wrote The Deadly Mantis. Uh, it was also co-written by Martin Berkeley, um, who also wrote Tarantula and Deadly Mantis. So um, I think for its time, they were, they were putting out some solid uh, B-movie sci-fi horror films. <clears throat> uh, we've got, of course, the legendary John Agar playing Professor Cleet Ferguson. He's another guy we could do a whole show on. Um, huge fan favorite. He was known for doing tons of horror and sci-fi B-movies. He, Oddly enough, he married Shirley Temple in 1945. Wow. Um, eventually, they got divorced, and his career started to decline, but that's when he found himself sort of becoming the king of B-movies, and he made a huge career out of it. He's always attended conventions over the years until his death. Um, again, he was also in Tarantula, The Mole People, The Brain from Planet Aris, uh, Attack of the Puppet People, Destination Space, uh, so many films. In fact, I, I may have it later in my notes. He um, There was a band that wrote a song about him, which is kind of cool. Oh. And he's mentioned <clears throat> in one of the songs in Rocky Horror Picture Show, which it's the one where they're mentioning like the horror movie titles. Yep. He's mentioned his name. I think his name is mentioned in that one as well. Okay. Uh, Lori Nelson plays Helen Dobson. She was in about 43 films that included The Day the World Ended, and she was also in the TV show How to Marry a Millionaire, which I believe was based on a movie, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, Joe, John Brumfeld was played by, I'm sorry, John Brumfeld played Joe Hayes, uh, another B-movie star who was in a ton of westerns. Nestor Paiva return, returns as the captain of the Rita uh, from the first film. Gordon, uh, I'm sorry, Grandin Rhodes played Jack Foster. He was also in like a bunch of serial mo- serials as well as um, uh, movies including Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. David Willock played Lou Gibson. Uh, he was also in It Came From Outer Space, The Queen of Outer Space. He was in a bunch of Jerry Lewis movies, which I didn't know. And hmm. um, he was also in the horror classic Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But one fact I did not know, I, I don't think you guys remember this cartoon. It was a cartoon called The Wacky Races. Oh, I know that show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the narrator on that show. And, wow. And uh, Robert Williams played George Johnson. He was in The Bat with Vincent Price and Hang Em High with Clint Eastwood. Uh Brett Halsey plays Pete. Now, Brett, we've tried to get Brett Halsey on the show, and when I contacted him, he basically got back to me and said he was tired of doing interviews. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote a book. I think he wrote a biography, and it talked about Hollywood and stuff. Um, Uh We've talked about him before on the show. He was in Return of the Fly. He was in Godfather 3, just tons of other stuff. Nice. Rico Browning returns as the underwater gill man here. And uh, Tom Hennessy plays, instead of Ben Chapman, he plays the Gill Man on land uh, this time around. Um, Revenge of the Creature. Uh, okay, blah, blah, blah. Uh, actually, Tom Hennessy nearly died when the stunt scene with Ginger Stanley, who was standing in for Nelson, went badly wrong. As Hennessy jumped off a pier with Stanley under his arm, he discovered the water was full of jellyfish and an unexpected current was pulling them both deeper underwater. Um, he, she escaped, but he was waterlogged because the creature suit got waterlogged. And it was heavy and inflexible, making it almost impossible for him to fight the swell. But two local boys had been watching the filming in a nearby boat. They raced over and pulled him to safety. <laughs> wow. So it was a close call, and it made the producer, Alan, uh, nervous. So the stunts henceforth would have to be carefully supervised. Um, and he was a stuntman with a handful of, of uncredited acting roles and then of course we've got the uh this is actually his second role i think tarantula was his first role where he played a um uh a jet fighter pilot in a brief scene was clint eastwood you know Mm -hmm. he plays lab technician jennings who finds the the rat in his pocket um you know what else can we say i mean clint eastwood man not in a ton of genre films but you know you could theoretically do a whole i mean then is now we could talk about him in a whole show um, yeah because he's just legendary and he's still acting today i mean god how old is he now you know he's in his 90s yeah i want to say he's i want to say he's 92 or 93 yeah and so he's still directing and acting Mm -hmm. um so uh, a couple things if we jump into the budget here it was four hundred sixty three thousand seven hundred dollars and it made three million at the box office not bad very good was awesome it was the only 3d film released in 1955 and the only 3d sequel to a 3d film reduced released during the golden age of 3d in the 50s when you know throughout this movie i kept looking for what the 3d elements were but i failed to see it same with the the first movie i'm like i'm like wait i'm like wait a minute it's like where are the 3d elements here i, I don't know i just didn't pick up on them well i did notice when spencer and i were watching it um the one of the big scenes that stuck out to me no pun intended was when they were using the bull prod and they kept kind of oh, waving that okay. towards the camera. Yeah, yeah, that was a big one. They had a couple of uh, um, aiming and adjusting the harpoon gun really, really close to the camera. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. 
Yeah. I thought it worked. I thought it. I thought it was you know clearly three clearly trying to be three D, but it didn't ruin the movie in any way. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, there are some movies like The House of Wax with Vincent Price, where like the guys um, hitting the paddle ball right at the camera. You know, obviously trying to show you the 3D effect or even like Friday the 13th Part 3, there were so many scenes where a weapon or a pole would be pointed right at the camera. <laughs> they, did yeah. the, they did the paddle ball thing in um, in Monsters vs. Aliens also. Oh, really? Ah, wow. Yeah, it's at the very beginning. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I don't remember that. It's very funny. <laughs> now, this was filmed mainly at Marineland in Florida, which... Um, which basically they it it's uh, I'm sorry it um um it, it Marineland doubled for the film's Ocean Harbor Oceanarium, um and then the St John River stood in for the Amazon in this film. Uh, as we mentioned, the creature was played by Hennessy and Rico Browning underwater. They considered having a gill woman in this movie, but changed their minds. I guess I don't know. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That would have been too much. Yeah. But it was fun seeing Clint Eastwood here. I thought you know, I, like, I forgot he was in this, and I said to Spence, "Do you know who that is?" He's like, "Uh." <laughs> yeah, I had absolutely no I had, idea. I right. No yeah, idea. I mean, I mean, you could recognize him immediately. I I, I kept thinking of uh, Nicholson's uh, first movie being The Little Shop of Horrors. Remember where he plays uh, the uh, the patient in the dentist chair? That's right. Yep. yep. Yeah. Oh my god. So you know, you got to say in this movie as as much as. It's not as good as the first one. Rico Browning's stunning underwater scenes really stole the show. Yeah, I, I'd say so. They they did, but but how much of that was recycled footage from the first movie? Ah, uh, I'm not sure. Actually, <laughs> I didn't really because it see it's it seems like quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> one thing too that was interesting is that uh, Rico Browning wanted credit for his role as the creature, uh, but the studio executive said no. I guess there was a guy that was supposed to play him named John Lamb, and for whatever reason, he got fired. So Rico Browning reprised the role, but he didn't get his his uh, his due credit. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is back in the 1950s, horror films rarely got sequels, um, especially direct ones that followed uh, the story from the first one. Uh, the Universal Monster films, as we've talked about previously, were loosely connected by tenuous links and ever-changing casts, but... Um, filmmakers and budgets meant that there weren't really that many clear and consistent tales being told. Uh, but when The Creature from the Black Lagoon came out in 54, a good decade after, uh, or almost a decade after Universal's golden period had ended, the studio hit gold once again. And so the sequel was rushed into production. Revenge of the Creature came out just a year after the first one and gave audiences more screen time of the Gill Man, but this time in an aquarium setting for him to go crazy in. So. <laughs> hmm couple of points of interest too. the lobster house restaurant where the creature kidnaps Lori Nelson was located in Jacksonville, Florida. It was destroyed in a fire in 1962. The Diamond Head restaurant, which is now the River City Brewing Company, was built adjacent to the site where the old lobster house once stood. Friendship Park was built on the vacant lot near where the lobster house stood. Um, so anyways, as we dive into this, uh, the, one of the first scenes of the creature is there's like this stork <laughs> that lands on a log and the creature jumps out and grabs the bird and yanks it under. <laughs> Yep, that I, would be I, one of the moments where I was like, it would be really cool if he... Oh! <laughs> I got a huge laugh out of that. <laughs> I thought that set the tone for the movie very well, yeah. though, to remind us that he's still a predator. Yeah, right. Still, still apex for his for his area, so we shouldn't underestimate him. Yeah. yeah. And there was one point, too, when the creature's underwater, and it looked like he was waving, and Spence, wasn't Aiden <laughs> in the room with us? And he goes, hi. Yeah. 
Yeah, he literally. I noticed that too. He was waving at the camera. I'm like, what are you doing, bro? I thought he was waving at the divers. Like, I'm over here, right? <laughs> like, like, like taunting them. Like, come on, motherfuckers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're in my house now. <laughs> oh man! Now, in the first film, we did see him breathing out of the water. Oh, and that was one thing I forgot to mention. Uh, I might have put it in the wrong spot in the notes, but um, when he's when we see him out of the water and it looks like he's breathing through his mouth, you see his gills pulsating. Yeah. And yeah. the way they did that was they had hoses inside the costume that ran up um, the dorsal fin up his spine. And there was like a dude, I, I don't know, one or two guys on the off camera that were pumping air through it. So he oh. would open his mouth every time the gills flapped open. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting. I, it, that, well, I just wanted to say that they, this is the first time they mention that he can breathe out of water for a few minutes, even though we saw him do it in the first one. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but even the first movie, I questioned how he was able to do that if he's if he's a creature of the sea. But also with this movie and with the third movie, when in the hell did he get vocal cords to be able to roar? <laughs> I was like, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, I mean, they do kind of, especially in the third one, which we'll get to, they, they kind of explain that he has latent lungs, so he can breathe for a little bit, so maybe he's got rudimentary vocal cords and he can only roar. Yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. <laughs> kind of like a like an intimidation factor thing. Like, there's no good reason to have a very loud roar for any other reason in the wild. Giving yourself away if you're an ambush predator like the Gilman, it's probably a... Uh, probably it might be you know it could be inter, it could be like interpersonal with the with the species right like mm. there's a lot of details like like the rhino horn is not very functional but the bigger rhino horn is the one that gets the females <laughs> so it, it it doesn't make sense like functionally but it does make sense if you you know you want to you know have a have a differentiator between you know d between males and females and uh yeah. you know alphas and betas uh, mm -hmm. Are there sea creatures that roar? Do sh sharks don't roar? Do they? No, I have no idea. What's well, funny you say that? that. Hey, do you remember Jaws of Revenge? Uh, in the la one of the last scenes, the, the the shark comes from comes out from under the water, starts roaring at the people on the boat. That's right. <laughs> Maybe that's where I got it, that from. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that that's why I was saying, uh, um, as a sea creature, he shouldn't have. I, I, you would think you would have, you would have vocal cords, but. You make a good argument, though, about it. Plus, you could argue he's half man, so hence, yeah, I guess it sort of makes sense. But yeah, upon first seeing, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're putting words in the writer's mouth now, but um, if they had one line of dialogue in this or the previous film that maybe said, oh, and that's why he roars, then yeah, it, we would have been able to accept it better. <laughs> I, I can I accept it enough that it's like he, ha he has arms and legs. <laughs> Like right. he has latent yeah. lungs. Like maybe he, yeah, like you said, rudimentary vocal cords for this particular species. I just looked it up. Sharks do not roar. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> they do. Make, they apparently make this like, like kind of guttural noise, but that's more of a reactionary thing because apparently they inflate their bodies with water to scare predators. Yeah. Um. Some of them, at least some sharks, not the big, not necessarily the bigger ones. So it's not like they can make the noise. It's just that they do make the noise. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, either way, it works for a horror film, I think. Um, especially, like, when he leaps out of the tank. Uh, that was fucking scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like, this is fine. <laughs> I think, again, we'll Aiden was watching it with us, and I said, um, he said, oh, can he get out of that tank? I'm like, no, he can't get out of the tank. And then he leaps out of it. 
uh, I thought the um, I thought the the they tried to at least keep the science semi consistent with the oh you know we can revive him in the same way we res- we revive big sharks. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. all right, that's pretty cool. I'm into that. That was tense though too, because you knew once they revived him, he was going to kill that guy. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't though. <laughs> no, but it was the ten. The tension was there that he could have. Yeah, he really could have. But we also had another character in this movie. We had Flippy, the quote-unquote educated porpoise. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. It said it on the sign. The quote-unquote, you know, the word "educated" in quotes. <laughs> oh man! But then yep. they're conditioning him with the bull prod, which I thought was interesting. I'd never heard. Of, I've heard of cattle prods, but I'd never heard of a bull prod before. No, I haven't either. I, I'm still curious on how it works because only the only the tip seemed to be electrified and it seemed to be mobile. I'm so curious if it doesn't run on batteries. That's a good point. I mean, I don't know how regular yeah. cattle prods work because those the, the tips are. It's only the tip that's electrified. Yeah, so I don't mm-hmm. know. I thought that was a, that was a neat point too, especially when in the second one they're like they they know it exists, so they're equipped to deal with it. You know what I mean? They're like, in, this time they actually establish, okay, cool, we're monster hunters. We're not scientists, necessarily. And they had a bigger boat, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and, indeed. Where they indeed. could they could capture him. Um, now, one thing's come, uh, discussion that Spence and I got into after watching this, if the wolf man bit the gill man, would the gill man become a werewolf? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I, 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 I choose to believe that they're different enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Gill Man's a happy medium. <laughs> <laughs> enough uh, to be humanoid, not enough to be a, a freaking were Gill Man. A were Gill Man, I like that. A wolf, wolf <laughs> Gill Man. D- um, the, the scene where uh, he's displayed in that you know in that exhibit where he's like in the um, I guess like aquarium tank, whatever you want to call it, it almost felt like Jaws 3D a little bit. Didn't did it remind you of that? Yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. And like the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, he, I'm like, he's going to run amok. And then he does. I'm like, yep, called it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to like break glass or whatever, just like in Jaws 3D where the shark goes through the glass and the glass goes flying into the camera. And it was this horrible effect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to revisit Jaws 3D. I saw that in the movies in 3D. And I, I just remember being bummed out because Simon McCorkendale got eaten. And I, I always yeah. liked him as an animal and, you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought it was interesting, too. They mentioned that every test they did, the creature barely misses being a human. So hmm. they don't really elaborate because obviously, you know, yeah. they don't want to get too sciencey. Um, but that was kind of. Uh, I'm trying to think what the point was of that. Is that just to. Uh, I don't know. I feel almost like that line is what led into the third movie, which we'll get to. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but then, of course, the creature tips the car over. That was freaking awesome. That maybe that also made me laugh. <laughs> that, that was another. That was another moment where I was like, "It would be really cool if he he's doing it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Walking towards the car, and I'm like, "He's really strong, isn't he?" Like, I thought that'd be so cool. Flip. Yeah. <laughs> down to the beach. I'm like, ah, oh, heck yeah. That's what I wanted. Yeah, that that was good. Of course, you've got a dog whose name is Chris, which is a dumb name for a dog. <laughs> but he fights the Gill Man and he gets killed, which I think a lot of people today would be upset about that. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. no. Uh, anyone who's like you know with animal rights, just in general, it's like it's it's upsetting by today's standards. Yeah, <laughs> it's very upsetting. I have to say though, 
the scene where he stalks the girl and he, you know, goes to, uh, goes like is outside her window. The way he's looking at her, that just the way his eye, his eyes are like bugged out. It was that was fucking funny. <laughs> and then, and then, did you know? <laughs> did you notice that when he looks at her, she's taking off her robe, his gills start erecting and pulsating. <laughs> I did not notice that. I was like, I was like, what is going on? That's funny. Yeah. Once again, just feeds into the you know damsel in distress type deal. <laughs> yeah. That they're that they're working with and. Eh. It's a 50s movie. I can give it a pass there. So at least we got a cool monster. At least we got a lot of said cool monster. Yeah. And that they didn't need to like have all that tension. Right. Right. And that was one thing I did notice, though, was that I said it to you, Spence, was that he kind of did look kind of stupid with the, the bug eyes. Oh, exactly. yeah. yeah. Have you seen fish out of water? They look dumb. <laughs> Most of them yeah. look really, really stupid. <laughs> you know, I thought if that actually worked was, you know, we know how threatening he is, yet you look him in the eyes and you're like, you know, I could laugh in your face, but you could crush my face. So right. yeah. who, who's really right. in charge here? <laughs> so now we get a similar scene to the first movie where it's um, the guy and the girl are swimming and um, the creature's pacing them from underneath like he did with the girl in the first one. Um, for me, this is where uh, the film started to lose me. I, it's, I felt it was meandering. Um, there was tension because you didn't know what was going to happen, but then ultimately nothing happens. Right. Well, also a question. Did they, when they went into the water, did they know that the creature could be in the water? That's a good question. I don't recall. I really don't know. What I do know is that at a certain point, the creature escapes, and then there's no, like, APB until the girl gets kidnapped. (laughs) (laughs) The girl gets kidnapped, and that's when the cops are all like, all right, we got to actually do something about this. But before that, there is no concern for the fish that can come out of water and has no problem killing people. Well, that's what I mean. It's like, why would if they knew the creature was a sea-based creature could be in the water, why would they go for a swim knowing damn well there could be a monster in there? Yeah, in, in uh, Florida. <laughs> in Florida. Florida. Not only that, the monster is right in their periphery as they're swimming. I'm like, he's right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know characters in horror movies don't have any peripheral vision. <laughs> no, I, true. But I mean, after we see such intelligent characters in the first movie, it's like, what happened? That's a good point. Yeah, that is disappointing. I, I wonder if in my own brain it was just in the background and I didn't realize it, but I knew there was something that wasn't right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this one was definitely trying to, like, cash in on the popularity of the creature a little bit more than than anything else. Yeah. I yeah. think. One thing I learned, too, um, the, the Gilman, speaking of the Gilman roar, um, if you've seen the Sp- uh, Steven Spielberg's film Duel with Dennis Weaver... About yeah. the guy being pursued by yep. the Mack truck, which Spence, I know mm-hmm. you've seen that because I watched it with you. Um, yeah, the distorted version of the Gilman's roar was used when the truck explodes. Spoiler really? Movie. Yeah. Huh. I'll have to watch it again. I like that movie. Yeah. Um, but then he another funny scene though, which was <laughs> freaky, was when he picks up the dude and throws him at the tree. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that was awful. Yeah. Wh- <laughs> I, I I wasn't. Ex- I was like. I was like. Oh, he's going to do the pickup thing again. That's kind of cool. Uh oh. Oh god. That <laughs> it was a. It was a great effect. But the, the thing that really made it so brutal was the fact that when he threw him, and you you can you know see him kind of moving at a constant rate. 
um, he, he hits the tree <laughs> really hard, and he <laughs> flops around, and that's that was to me what really like hurt so bad. Yeah, like if he threw him like you know threw him fifteen feet away onto the sand, like oh that's crazy, <laughs> into the tree, right? Bang, head <laughs> full face too, like there was no. There was no, like, on the back. That was full face. And it was one of those shots. So, It was one of those shots, like, in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where the Wolfman's on top of the giant machine, and Frankenstein picks it up, and it goes flying across the room. And it's obviously, even though you don't see the wires, it's obviously the way the gravity works is that it's on wires. That yeah. The same thing happened with this guy's body, but for me, it worked. It had the same effect. I was like, oh, my God, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it it worked like you know my eyes were like okay, gravity is clearly not working properly, but <laughs> the impact made up for it. <laughs> yeah, and then of course, speaking of the Wolfman, we have the Wolfman theme shows up again here, mm-hmm. and then you know I guess it's kind of a short film. Getting to the end here, um, we have the same shot of him dead in the water as he was in the first. Yeah, totally noticed that. I was like, yep, that's from the first movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, I saw that, and I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Save, saving some dollars, you know? <laughs> right. It's all right. <laughs> it's, but but the, the Gill Man, between the first and the second movie, he takes a lot of punishment. I mean, he gets shot and speared and, you know, he's, which is, I, I had mentioned to Spence when we watched it, that was um, a friend of mine doesn't like the movie The Monster Squad because the one shotgun, shotgun blast from the fat kid kills the Gill Man. And oh. I really didn't think about it until watching these two movies. I was like, shit, he's probably right. I mean, the Gilman looks like he could take a lot of punishment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I was Dracula, I'm sending the Gilman first if I can help it. Right. <laughs> you know, right. He, he, we're used to him controlling the Wolfman stuff, but the Gilman's a gnarly beast. Yeah. yeah. I love it. He's got a high armor class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, um, if, do you guys have anything else you want to say about this movie? Uh, again, uh, I didn't think this was very good, unfortunately. I mean, at least when you compare it to the first one. Um, I guess within the scheme of uh, the other Universal horror movies, um, uh, monster movies, um, this isn't quite on the same level as bad, like I said, as like some of the Mummy sequels. But, I mean, I didn't think this was very intelligent or very smart, unfortunately, so... Not one I would recommend for a first viewing, but if you're curious, as a curiosity, then yeah, I say check it out. It is fun. Yeah, yeah. Spence, final thoughts? Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. It has a lot of good moments that we've we've gone over, and a lot of iffy moments. Um, but I I'm seeing it as the movie had a lot of fundamental problems because it wasn't as authentic as the first one. But the attention to detail was still there. They, you know, kept up with the science, kept up with what the Gilman can and can't do. He still took a lot of punishment in this one, too, and got a, got a lot of good fights in as well, and a lot more on land. So I thought that they they had a bad thing to work with, but they did a good job out of it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, liked, I liked how they took him out of his element and brought him to marine land. And it was a different direction from the first film. It wasn't a complete retread, even though there were a couple of scenes that were similar. Um, it wasn't a full-on, you know, sort of like um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where you might as well have just remade the first one. But um, I, I used to like this one a lot more than I did after this viewing. <laughs> um, I, I felt the film did meander a lot towards the last third. But overall, with the carnage, it, it is a still a, it's still a solid monster movie. 
Um, and it was rare for films back then to follow up a sequel directly, like we mentioned. So I did like that. Like I said, the progression of taking him out of his environment and putting him into Marine World. Um, I did enjoy the carnage. I, I do recommend it. Again, you should really see the first one first. And, yeah. Uh, so watch this. So we're going to take a break. And when we return, we're going to watch the third or we're going to discuss the third film. The Creature Walks Among Us from 1956. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and Ahead of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kids Radio. Never before was science so determined. From the deeps of the Caribbean to the underwater jungles of the Everglades, they baited their traps and gambled their lives to put a daring dream to the test. Gentlemen, the creature can be changed. We can make the giant step and bring a new species into existence. Here was the grimmest cargo ever to reach civilization. Was this a new being created by a miracle of science? Fire burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. Or was this a beast made even more frightful by a mortal mind, more powerful by human emotion? <laughs> the skills may grow back. Never. His features, his skin, they're more like a human's every day. Gilman's escape from Ocean Harbor Oceanarium in Florida, a team of scientists led by the deranged and cold-hearted Dr. William Barton board the Vagabondia 3, 
to capture the creature in the Everglades. Barton is mentally unstable and apparently an abusive husband to his wife, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> as he becomes very jealous and paranoid when Marsha is with other men. Their guide, Jed Grant, makes numerous passes at Marsha, which she constantly rebuffs, with Barton becoming paranoid about the two. Marsha accompanies Jed and Dr. Tom Morgan on their initial dive to look for the Gilman, despite her husband's fierce objections. During the dive, Marsha swims too deep and is overcome with, quote, the raptures of the deep, unquote, temporarily losing her mind and removing all her scuba gear. This forces Jed and Tom to abandon their hunt for the Gilman to swim back and save her. While he is eventually captured, the Gilman is badly burned in a fire, leading to a surgical transformation performed by Barton, Tom, and their colleagues, Dr. Borg and Dr. Johnson. While bandaging the Gilman, the doctors notice that he is shedding his gills and scales and even breathing using a kind of latent lung system. Now that the creature has more human-like skin, he is given clothing. The doctors attempt to get the Gilman used to living among humans, although his life is saved, he is apparently unhappy, staring despondently at the ocean. Barton ruins the plans when, in a murderous rage, he kills Jed, jealous that he had made romantic advances towards his wife. Realizing what he has done, Barton then tries to put the blame on the Gillman. The Gillman, witnessing the murder and apparently realizing that he is being blamed for the murder, goes on a rampage. After ripping down the confining electric fence, he kills Barton. Alone in alien territory, the Gillman resolutely shuffles off into the sea, presumably to commit suicide since he no longer possesses the ability to breathe underwater. First impressions? Uh, so going into it, I was expecting a movie as bad as as um, as Revenge, uh, if not worse. But I actually really enjoyed this one. <laughs> it was like it took a deeper dive into the themes I thought of the story, uh, in probably as much or even more so than the first one, uh, especially in the dialogue. Um, I don't think it's like a great movie by any means, but it's definitely a very solid sequel. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I've always considered this the weakest of the three. And again, with the last movie, with the last film, my viewing, this viewing changed my opinion. And I got a lot more out of it than I ever did. Uh, it's definitely a departure from the first two um, and quite possibly an evolution of the story, which sort of par parallels the evolution of the creature in this. Uh, there was a lot of philosophizing about man tinkering with nature and, and always fucking things up. And I guess when I was younger, I never got that. Um, I even, Spence, when you and I watched this, I said to you afterwards that if someone wanted to write a college thesis about themes in a movie, this would be a great one to use. Um, I felt like it was it was definitely a deeper dive into the themes. There were the I'm sorry. I felt like the deeper dive into the themes. Hello. What am I trying to say? Here? Use your words. Come on. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I feel like a deeper dive into the themes of this film is warranted, um, more so than we could probably do in this show. But and clearly here, man is the bad guy, and the creature is sort of a hapless pawn. Um, so, Spence, what did you yeah. think? Yeah, I would. I would agree. Uh, I would say that you know this is probably probably lowest on the totem pole for me personally, but I think it's a really, really well-made movie. Uh, you know, we've established that there's a lot of human subplot that goes on that kind of, like, parallels everything that's going on. The The Creature Walks Among Us is a very loose title for about 50% of the movie is really the whole deal. Um, but I don't know. I really, I really enjoyed what they were doing and all that stuff. I just didn't... Uh, I don't care for romance and romantic subplots in most of my movies anyway i would rather just watch the monster go on a rampage yeah <laughs> so um 
so this is my my personal like least uh, least liked but that doesn't mean at all any negativity towards it it's a very well-made movie yeah yeah and we'll get into the themes in a little bit i just want to talk about the the cast and crew it was directed by a guy named john sherwood because jack arnold who directed the first two in the series had moved on to a-list films um, and he felt that he didn't really have anything else to contribute to the horror genre. He suggested that his assistant director, Sherwood, could move up to full director, which partially affected Universal's decision to let him direct the movie. I guess Sherwood was a longtime assistant director at Universal, so um, be- based on Jack Arnold's recommendation, Universal was like, all right, give it a try. And uh, Arthur A. Ross, which we talked about in the first film, wrote this one without any assistance, apparently, at least according to IMDb. Now, in our cast, we've got Jeff Morrow, who plays Dr. William Barton. He was, and it wasn't until I, I forget where I saw it, but I, someone said his name and I, I recognized his face. He was the alien exeter on this island Earth. He was like the head of the aliens. Oh. <laughs> um, he was also in Kronos, uh, The Giant Claw, and he was in the infamously bad movie Octoman. Nice. <laughs> if you've had the misfortune of seeing that movie, I'm sorry. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, famous guy Rex Reason played Dr. Thomas Morgan. He's a fan favorite. Um, he's the main character in This Island Earth, as well as uh, he was in quite a few westerns and TV shows. He's another guy that was always attending conventions until he died. Uh, Lee Snowden played Marsha Barton. She was in Kiss Me Deadly and Hot Rod Rumble, which is a fun movie. Uh, Greg Palmer plays Jed Grant, and he plays he's a total douche here. <laughs> I hated his character, but I kept saying he didn't. He look like George Reeves a little bit, the original Superman or the oh, yeah. TV show Superman. He does. Yeah, mm-hmm. I kept waiting, thinking he was going to go. Yeah, but I look like George Reeves, honey. So don't you want to go? With yeah. <laughs> he was also in the Zombies of Maratau and uh, a movie called Big Jake with John Wayne. Uh, we've got Maurice Manson as Doctor Borg, who sadly never says resistance is futile in this, um, because he's a Borg. But anyways. <laughs> He was in tons of things <laughs> till the 80s. And then, of course, Rico Browning reprises his role as the Gilman in the Water. And a guy named uh, Don McGowan played Gilman on land. He was in the movie The Werewolf, uh, Creation of the Humanoids, and Blazing Saddles, among others. Oh, what did he play in Blazing Saddles? I, you know, I have to look that up, but I almost think he's the guy that, that does, um, uh, what was it? Uh, wasn't he... Harvey Corman's assistant that says, um, how about you sing the Camptown Ladies? Oh, all right. <laughs> let, me, let me look him up real quick and see if I can confirm that. Uh, he was Gum Chewer. Okay. I guess that, I, I don't know <laughs> okay. who Gum Chewer is. <laughs> okay. I have to watch Blazing Saddles again so I can see. I know. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll have to cover that one on this show, too, because yeah. it's such a fun movie. That's a rough movie to watch for the I, 21st yeah. century. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I don't it care. Is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, no, I'm not I'm not sliding it. I love me some dark humor. It's just one of those things that you have to warn somebody. Otherwise, you're going to have a really bad crowd if they're not ready for that. Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Although, it was still pretty good. <laughs> So um, we talked about the pacing in the last film. This definitely had some uneven pacing because, like the thirty-five, the first thirty-five minutes is dedicated to the chase through the Everglades, um, which this does recycle a lot of the underwater footage from the first movie. Oh yeah. Um, and the the bulk of the rest of the film is this character study about Doctor Barton, you know, chastising his wife for practically getting raped twice by Jed. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yep. Yeah. Um. 
Yeah. You know, the, oh, in this one, they had the Rotenone blasting device, which the guy had attached it. So he had two tanks on. One was oxygen. One was the Rotenone. I don't think David in the first one had that. He had something. Like, I was almost like a mosquito repellent, because remember that was someone said mosquito, and that made him think of it? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was cool in this, too. He could really get a concentrated blast right at the creature. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, of course, uh, they have the sonar machine as well. Yeah. <laughs> and they have to explain it, because sonar was new. Well, you see, the sound waves bounce off the object and come back to you. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> that was kind of cool. I thought that was a very, like, just a quick, you know, you just need a quick line to explain how it works, and then bam, either That's suspension, it. disbelief, or it's real. It doesn't matter. Right, right. It works. Mm -hmm. It's just funny, because that was new back then. You know, like, nowadays, if we said yeah. sonar, we know what it means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's pretty common. <laughs> and then Marsh is shooting, I forget, was she trying to shoot the creature or something, and then they take the gun from her, and she's like, you can just see the look on her face, she's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was mad. She I was, was mad. I, when I heard the gunshots, I'm like, oh, Jesus, the action's getting up. And she's just, like, got the gun chilling. Yeah. Bang, bang. I'm like, whoa, whoa hold on. <laughs> Was not ready for that. And for me, I thought, again, in terms of talking about evolution of these films and evolution of the creature, this was an evolution of the portrayals of women or femininity in these movies because she's really uh, an independent chick with the gun and yes. everything, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like she's even treated as such here more so than Kay was in the first movie. Yeah, more. a little, a little, a little bit. I mean, Sans her her husband, obviously, but you know. Well, and I think that's the dichotomy is that she's she's far more independent and self sufficient than Kay was. Yet yeah, she's a victim of her husband's abuse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a matter of like insecurity, where you know if you're dating someone with a mind of their own yes it's yeah it's, it's kind mm -hmm. of like concerning you know but there's no there's no there's no concern for her as a person there's just this this acknowledging it exists and then being afraid of it yeah I, and, I didn't care for it but i think it worked for what the character they were trying to write oh yeah and one of the ways i feel like they rationalize it is that they they make a point of saying that she married him when she was 17 and i yep. got the impression i think they said she was 25 in this film so i got the impression that she felt like she was trapped especially back in the day when when divorce was the d word and you didn't do that and you didn't talk about it and it was yeah. a bad thing mm -hmm. so she's like I, i'm screwed you know <laughs> yep um there's a line too that came up i wonder i'll see if i can find it real quick in my notes here yeah uh you know uh Talking about the philosophy as well, someone says, change the metabolism and man will change. And, um, no, that's not the line. <laughs> Where is it? That is a good line, though. Here we go. Um, you know, Rex, I think it was Rex who says, um, we all have to leave the past sometime, uh, meaning the creature's going to have to adapt to the new world. But Marsha says, yep. maybe it's too late, which could have been referring to herself. That's how I took it, too. That was... That, that's one thing about this movie is the dialogue here is really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. I was, I remember sitting through it, like the, 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 fam, the familial drama and I'm like, all right, I'm cool with this. And then it just, it went on. Yeah. It went on. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, okay, um, where's the creature? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think the whole subplot about the, uh, th this whole like love triangle as it were, that whole subplot, 
I didn't think it was necessarily needed or if it was needed, maybe it, sh- maybe it shouldn't have drawn as much attention to it as it did, but it does work, I think. Yeah. I, I think it's more of a pacing issue than a content yes. issue because I do think that they had a like you know they, they had to have you know Jed has to come on to her in a really really creepy way and it was even creepy for the 50s like there's a there's a level of like you know oh you know she's just playing hard to get and being that weird to a married woman uh, and they were very very clear about that and I thought that worked and I think you know as much as I don't love it when the creature is on the screen he steals the show yeah. every time. Yeah. Yes. And I kind of was okay with that. And she's a victim both ways because Jed practically rapes her. If the creature hadn't intervened, she he would have done the deed, you know? Yeah. And yeah. she's not only a victim yeah. of her husband, she's a victim of Jed, too. Right. Yep. Right. So, and it's interesting because it's almost like was the writer subconsciously punishing her character for being this overly independent, strong female? Or was it showing you can be overly independent and strong and yet still be a victim to things? Yeah, I almost wonder mm. if it's a matter of like you know no you know no matter what happens, no matter what man is doing to itself, like nature will always have something to say about it. Yeah, yeah, you know because there's, there's that whole moment where he comes in and ba- bashes Jed up against yeah. the the wall, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, I kind of hope he's dead. <laughs> I was like, that's. That was really cool. Yeah. And there's a whole sequence of the, the Gilman jumping into the water and they're like, he's going to drown. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 I thought, th- I thought that, was a, that was a cool moment. I'm like, all right, cool. So now we have these two plots going on and I, I, I could work with that. Uh, I thought that was neat. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, this is one of the reasons I don't think I cared for it as much when I was younger because I didn't get it, you know. But if they had thrown more carnage in, uh, uh, you know, like you said, to sort of even out the pacing and can keep the character study in it, I think that would have been even a better movie. Yeah, yeah I mean, definitely. you could have even had some more character moments with the creature in the in the table, like kind of looking up and seeing the people who actually like kept him alive. Right. You know, it's, right. It's hard. They didn't. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have that. They tried to have the creature, you know, as the creature as a victim of things, but his character didn't get too developed besides just learning what he's capable of. Yeah. 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 In terms of mm-hmm. being intelligent. It, what I liked about this too is it jumped right into the story. They didn't waste any time bullshitting about whether the creature existed or not. They they knew he existed. He had you know people saw it at Sea or Marine World or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know they just dove right into the story, which was kind of cool. Yeah. But another quote harkening back to the first movie is "There's no shortcut for men getting to outer space," meaning yeah maybe we can adapt humans to other worlds, but you know it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, 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 th- yeah. They're very, very uh, into the whole like evolution thing that you know you can't mess with nature, and then the people who do mess with nature, it just bites them in the ass. Right. Those are the people who end up getting killed. As yep, as, as, yep, as evident later in the movie. But uh, yeah, I mean that that was one of the best parts for me. Uh, we'll get into it later, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the creature doesn't show up until 17 minutes in. Actually, Spence, you and I paused it just to see. We're like, oh, there he is. How far in are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought there was a, um, a really... I love that I love that scene, though, when they're hunting him and he's hunting them. Yeah. And it's, it's a little different than when he's in the Amazon because it's like, you know, he's watching them. Like, are they just wandering through? Are they staying? Are they leaving? Like, what are they doing? And then he's like, he's, you know, they're taking rocks and stuff. Okay, now that's a problem. Uh, but now he's now he's in Florida. You know, this is if you've seen the first couple of movies, you're thinking to yourself, he's out of his element, even though he's in the water. 
Like, you know, he's he's aggressive. He's angry and attacking people vividly, jumping on their very small boat. Right. <laughs> jumping onto their very small boat, <laughs> uh, which I thought was really, really awesome. And, you know, they're even though they had a, a ton of they, – they kept it consistent, too, with the lights. He never liked the lights, even in the first one. Yeah. So I thought that the, when they kept that, that was very, very, uh, very cool, and it didn't. I, I don't know. It was it was a nice detail that they could have just left out, but they didn't. Right. I love that. Right. <clears throat> and, and I mean, that is a good scene when when they're hunting him and all that, and, and you know he's watching them from afar. But that it's clearly footage of him swimming from the first movie. It does it does not cut together well because the geography is off. I mean. They're looking in one direction, creatures look in the other direction. I'm like, wait a minute, what the hell's going on here? Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I did I did notice that. I was like, okay, I guess it kind of makes sense, but it looks awfully similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And when they were underwater, the like you mentioned in the synopsis suspense, um, she she gets the raptures uh Marsha gets the raptures of the deep, which is also known as the bends. And you know, we're watching it and she's taking her flipper off and I was thinking, oh, that's weird. Well, maybe it's, you know, they're uncomfortable or something. But then she throws it to the bottom of the thing. And that's when I knew she had the bends. I was like, oh, fuck, she's she's screwed. You know? <laughs> it's, for me, I didn't quite realize it until uh, she was starting to take her aqua lung off. Yeah. Like, you know, however, however deep she was, you know, 40, 50 feet under the water, which is just j- just a bad news. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Oh, man. But then, of course, as you mentioned, the Gilman jumps onto the ship. Oh, no, he follows the ship. I'm sorry. I think he jumps on at a later point. Um, but, you know, we see, we hear the werewolf music um, as he's following. Oh, he's following them, right. And then he jumps on, and it reminded me of the Mariner in the movie Waterworld when he, like, leaps out of the water, ah. which is a great scene and otherwise okay film. Um I, I think I'm one of the few people in the world that actually likes Waterworld, but <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I did I did like that scene because I you know I'm glad that even though it's all about you know the creature walks among us and there's a marriage issue um, <laughs> the, there's a, there's all of that we still got underwater and you know still got Gilman action with him fighting people and really a really good one too because he he knocked a couple people. And he was just a little outclassed at this point and actually ended up screwing himself over. He fumbled his yeah. role and he sets himself on fire. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He covers himself in the gasoline and they set him on fire. That's right. Yeah. Is, That's is right. what it was. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say that that to me, I was. I remember thinking in the first movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that they set him on fire in the third one. That's how he loses his gills. Oh, I'm funny that they did that in the first one i'm like oh well whatever it's you know 50s movies they weren't too concerned with continuity but they made it very clear that this was a different scenario than just like hitting him with a lantern and he had to jump into the water he was you know it happened for he was standing there for a couple of seconds of it burning through right you you can kind of see that it was it was definitely a different situation and not the same thing and i was like okay that's actually really really good as a as a writer i'm like that's a very good good point to be making yeah for your for your yeah. your point your play your what am i what but, am I watching film <laughs> but what but what was funny about that was he basically douses himself in gasoline i'm like i'm like i'm like why right <laughs> why <is he> d- <laughs> i think he i said the same it, though. thing he threw it at somebody <laughs> what i think it was open i think it was open was what it was because i remember he threw it or like so he, he used ah. it to attack somebody he was mo- he was throwing their shit 
like into the water and stuff, knowing that it would screw with them. And he picked up an open can of gasoline oh, and at, at the wrong angle. I, that's what I saw, and I didn't really see that. I, I, I'm not seeing that as putting words in the writer's mouth. I think that was the intended idea. Okay, so he picked it up to throw it, but didn't realize it was open, and that's why it dumped all over his head. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm surprised that it, he didn't like react to the gasoline. But besides that, I mean, I, I don't know. Fish can smell things, really. Right. <laughs> At least in air. <laughs> That's so funny. But then he lifts a giant log, and but that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> oh man! But then he of course passed out because of the damage he took from the fire. But you know, we just if they just had a little bit more of that cool stuff of him being super strong and. You know, it's this carnage. That's the word that keeps coming up with me. Is it's, if we had more carnage, it would, it would have been an even yeah. more awesome movie. It, it, it's so funny that you say that because just this morning I finished reading uh, Spider-Man: Maximum Carnage, <laughs> the graphic novel uh, that had all the com- all fourteen uh, different issues of comics that told the story of Maximum Carnage. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I still haven't Pretty seen good. the second Venom movie yet. Uh, I've I've thoughts on that one, but you know, with the Gilman. Yellman's pretty pretty good with the carnage. Yeah. I, I like when he's he's destroying stuff and all that jazz. But he's he's still once again still not stupid, just outclassed. It's like you know, imagine showing up to the same encounter playing an RPG, but now you're five levels higher than you were last time, and you're ready for him. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a little it's a little different. It, the the fight goes differently, and I thought that was cool. That's true. That's true. And then so after they they rescue him from from the water because he's passed out. They have to put a tracheotomy on him to force him to use his latent lungs, which I thought I thought that was kind of cool. Again, now mm-hmm. he's starting to evolve. Um, yeah. You know, even though Jeff Morrow was a creepy ass, you know, trying to forcibly change him, which again it goes to that line about you know man can't just leap, you know, in a you know in an instant, and yet he's forcing this creature to evolve right before our eyes. You know, and they take his bandages mm-hmm. off, and it actually, when they took it off, the design of what he looked like was, it looked similar, um, like as Spence mentioned, we watched some of the documentary that came with it, and um, the original design, he didn't have all the gills and stuff on his face, He it was smoother, much more like in this movie. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't think it was explained very well how he, how the creature suddenly acquired a human-like appearance and my reaction was like oh because science <laughs> i'm like wait i'm like wait a minute how does a tracheotomy tra- change his appearance unless i miss something well i think the gills burnt off his face off his head yeah, right like like right. all his fins were gone too no i got that but like they made it seem like that their surgery is what is what did that i'm like wait what i'm like i'm like i'm like i'm like wait a minute i'm like wait a minute what did i miss <laughs> I mean, I could see your point because, like, then they, because then they said his his scales came off and he had a human like skin underneath. Right. So you know, you could argue that well, because now he's breathing, his body went into panic mode and said, "Okay, well, we're gonna shed the water stuff and start adapting to the air breathing world." Um, yeah. But you know, that's that's kind of, again, that's putting words in the writer's mouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, you know, one other thing, I mean, I guess you're going to have to chalk that up to, you know, why didn't uh, the brain work in the Frankenstein monster and because the blood was different. True. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because science. Yeah. That, that's still really funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and they were trying to change the whole game up, you know, like it wasn't just like a, we're still we're hunting a, the same creature in a different situation. Like in the second one, it was we're we're now n- things are evolving. So it, there's some there's some clunkiness along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the line comes in, change the metabolism and man will change. 
You know, I almost want to say change the metabolism, change the world, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Um, you know, it's like and one of the things they do mention, you know, the stars or the jungle, it doesn't matter, the change is needed in order to adapt to either one of those. Um, mm. and we do get to see the best and the worst in in mankind in this movie. Oh, absolutely. This yeah. there's a there's a there's a one good scientist who's not creepy. And kind of has a few like good heart to heart moments with Marsha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, he was cool. I remember like I remember that they kind of looked a little bit more similar than they did in the first one. Um, yeah. So I remember like getting a little confused. Like, wait, is that yeah, me too, uh, that's not the husband? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So this isn't the husband. Got it. Right. Yeah. And I was trying to trying to get the names together, but there was one that I there was one guy I can't remember his name. Um, he was, he was cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was cool. He he cared more about the creature than anything else, and I'm like, all right, at least we're, at least it's not just all trauma. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that was Rex Reason's character, right? He was yeah, Thomas Morgan. Thomas and, Morgan, yeah, yeah, and you could tell by his voice too. He sort of had this kind of voice that sounded like this, you know. But he, he was he's good. I mean, he's always plays a good guy mm-hmm. in his movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, but then when the creature stops Jed from <clears throat> from raping Marsha, he hits him with a karate chop to the stomach. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was pretty good. That was awesome. That was pretty good. Because you know what makes it, that scene great is you just you know that something awful is about to happen, and you're rooting for the creature to finally get up and do something about it, and he fucking does, and that was just amazing. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I was I was pretty happy with that, and like you know, and the the whole situation just worked out for how it was it wasn't like you know he saw a girl getting attacked and stuff like that it just was that was where she was getting attacked and then he decided to show up and it changed the situation and part of it too is that and i kind of joked about it when we were watching it but it also i've read it in a couple of places that he knew that um at a later point he was gonna he was getting blamed for that killing for killing jed and he was yeah, getting yeah, framed yeah, yeah. for it, basically. Mm-hmm. He he knew that there was a body, you know. And even so, even if he didn't know, what are they feeding him? Like he he's not going to eat a a you know a human. He doesn't do that, right? So right. uh, you know, regardless, I think that was also him him noticing that that's probably the moment that he just has to get out of there because he's surrounded by. Like murderers, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're captured by a group of creatures and one of them kills the other one, right? <laughs> you're like, uh, uh, I don't know if I still want to be here. Right. <laughs> These guys are nuts. I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> oh man! But then, but then Morgan jumps into the water with just the breathing hose and saves the creature's life. Which uh, that that, I awesome. love that scene. I love that scene too. Yeah. yeah. And you could tell that the creature was resisting him at first, and then realized what he was trying to do and went along with it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that worked. That worked pretty well. And Morgan even says at a later point, he goes, he remembers being attacked. He remembers fear. You know, yeah. meaning that the creature's not evil. He's just friggin' defending himself for God's sakes. Mm. Yeah, exactly right. Like you, you, you feels like you get kidnapped. You know, like they first they burnt me, then they kidnap me, and I try to go back, and they just they just take me back. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like a yeah. little little concerning. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But and even Morgan brings up the fact that you know it, uh, about talking about the murder. It's law of the jungle versus murder. You know, is it yeah. fight killing for survival or killing for sport? Yeah, and then um, uh, Doctor Burns, uh, Doctor um responses to that are very telling because he's sort of talking about himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. You know, 
in 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 regards to um uh Marsha. Right. Know. Like yeah. he's 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 in control. Man has to be in control. He's in control. Right. Mm-hmm. You know. And, and then of course a cougar shows up in Florida and I was like, "What?" <laughs> but I I looked it up, man. Florida panther is a North American cougar population in South Florida. It lives in the pinelands, tropical hardwood hammocks, and mixed freshwater swamp forests. So that was huh. that was actually real. <laughs> Interesting. That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I I think this movie, in the same vein as the second one, has a lot of issues that make it make it a little little hard to watch. But the attention to detail is still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really always always admire that about it, you know. And they were very they were clear from the from the get go that you know he was you know part man part fish, and you know from the very first movie they just expanded a bit more of how it works. Right, right. So I think I I liked it. I thought I thought that this movie had a lot to lot to offer. It's just that they they edited it a little rough. Yeah, <laughs> rough around yeah. the edges, in my opinion. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Marsha kills the 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 panther or the the cougar which i thought was <laughs> yeah. cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i felt that the creature saw um dr barton william as the predator yeah particularly the ending when uh jed's body is thrown into the cage yeah and you know creature realizes that he's being framed for the murder um that that's when things for me really got interesting because then you sort of ask yourself is uh, you know it, you sort of ask yourself uh uh is dr barton the real monster here the real creature uh you know uh um you know was this a learned behavior from studying this creature you know like things like that i'm like wow this is getting really interesting <laughs> yeah i agree i agree that's what you know like i said this time around i didn't notice these things before yeah definitely you know he's kind of like the frankenstein monster in a way yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he kind of moved like him too near the end, the end of, of the film. Yeah, the end of it. Yep. Definitely. Well, even the clothing and the look of him, uh, he had that very sort of Frankenstein's monster look. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, he did. You know. Oh, a uh, Rex reason uh, afterwards says, you know, we're not so far from the jungle and the stars. Are we willing to admit it? You know, which I thought was was great because it's like, yeah, I think one of the overriding themes in this is uh, in all three films is are humans ready to encounter these things that we we've never encountered before? Mm-hmm. You know, what's our first reaction? Yeah. Well, in the first movie, Mark's reaction was to kill it, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I did have a tear in my eye at the end when the creature was headed for the ocean because you knew full well he wasn't going to survive. Yeah. And uh, it um and I'm watching that. I'm like, I like that moment too. But then I'm asking myself, and then one of the things I wrote down in my notes, which we already touched on, but uh, I wrote, did he just commit suicide? <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine because of that, if he hadn't had that encounter earlier where, um, what's his name? Rex Reason had to rescue him. Yeah. He wouldn't have known that, oh shit, I can't breathe underwater anymore. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, this, they didn't show him go into the water and drown. I, for some reason, remember him doing that, but uh, he didn't. They just The movie just kind of faded out as he walked towards the beach. Right. I mean, you know, that, to, to think he's, you know, he's not totally stupid. Right. So, I don't know. I feel like that. I feel like there's a level of, like, you could potentially, you know, add more to that, uh, you know, with 
with things like that you know if you were so inclined right like you know we're all about remakes these days but i really like i like you know reboots but like soft reboots where you know you get more you get rewarded for the old but you still can enjoy the new sort of like uh, ghostbusters afterlife mhm uh yeah. yeah basically yeah, yeah. Definitely. you know i mean who knows uh, people could have come up to him before he went into the water and then somehow convinced him no no come with us we'll take care of you or something like that you know right right so yeah so final thoughts on uh the creature walks among us chris i i like this one uh more than i expected to this is my first time seeing it and it's actually um it's actually a deeper movie than i expected it to be um could have been strengthened a little bit with uh, having more monster than the marriage and the jealousy, but uh, all the same, I still, uh, you know, really liked it. Spence, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it for what it was. Um, my preference is always more monster, uh, less, <laughs> less, you know, uh, romance. <laughs> but uh, all in all, I think that this movie, I think it's also a nice break because the first two are pretty much focused on exclusively the Gilman. so if you know if you wanted something a little bit more substantial it definitely does that and it doesn't shy away from when the Gilman does show up so they they went in with a vision and they executed it pretty well with a few iffy moments here and there so i think it's a i think it's a good movie i'd, I'd give it like a, a seven out of ten for me personally hmm. i agree good but not my favorite i agree although i wouldn't use the term romance because <laughs> he's just abusing her <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I guess I guess I guess romance romantic relationship as the topic. Right. I was um, referring to it as I character study in my notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't sense. care for it. It doesn't you know, I don't think it adds anything to it. I agree. I think all three of us can agree that the balance between action and uh, carnage and character study needed to be fixed in this movie in order for it to really work. Um but again, seeing this this time around uh, I got a lot more out of the themes in this film. I understood a lot more of what was going on. Um, I, I definitely think it's it's one of these movies that needs to be readdressed and reassessed um, and, and dived into even a little deeper than we've just done here and maybe sort of dissecting the characters and their motives. Pretty much with the exception of Dr. Morgan, all the characters in this are worthless. Mm. They're, they're all scumbags. Uh, maybe the girl, too. She's not, but... Yeah, I was going to say, Marsha's not bad. No, she wasn't bad. But the other characters, it's like at least in the first one, okay, Mark was kind of a douche. It was a dick. Um, and even then you could see his point. Right. Right. Mark, and he Mark was like in charge of the life. Institute. So he was kind of looking out for that as well in terms of financial success. You know, the second one, same thing. You had characters that were for him, didn't want him killed. But then you had characters who were like, well, no, he's an asset to Marineland. Um, but in this one, Barton was just completely gonzo, just wanting to evolve this thing and force an evolutionary change that couldn't be forced, you know? Yeah. And that yeah. might be the ultimate thing at the end where he is heading to the water is you can't force an evolutionary change. It's it's going to get rejected by nature. Yeah. Yeah. So, I would say so. You know, I, I obviously, like I said, I can see why this film's been criticized. Uh, for not having, you know, go to a monster movie, we expect more monster action. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's definitely one for completists. I, I think, you know, if you, if you start out watching the first one, then you should definitely continue and finish with this one. Um, yeah. People, I think different people will get different things out of this movie.
Okay, folks, thank you for joining us today for our analysis of the three Creature from the Black Lagoon films. We hope you've had a chance to go and check them out. And if not, if you've already listened to this show, we've spoiled the shit out of them for you. But go and watch them anyway. They're really good. They're worth watching. And we'd love to hear your opinion on it, too. You know, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. That is now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so be sure to check out other great shows there at the Dorkeningpodcast.com. You can find me on my website, which is storiesmotion.com. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stories in Motion. You can also visit our website at Havenpodcast.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, check out the Patreon and T Public links to get some exclusive stuff. That's right, folks. And then is now is on YouTube. So please visit youtube.com slash user slash Uncle Death One to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and don't forget to hit that little bell to get notifications when we put stuff out. And also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends to get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. This Now Podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. shows like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com